The score for Blade Runner is and always will be a game changer. While there are many that try and emulate what Vangelis created, very, very few have come close to his genius. In this episode of Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, myself, Patrick, and newly announced contributing host, Dr. Robin Bunce, go through the score track by track, barely scratching the surface on what continues to be one of the greatest soundtracks ever produced for a film. We hope you enjoy. Do you like our owl? How many questions does it usually take to spot? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30 cross-referenced. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores. Burning with the fires of Hawk. Your new models are happy scraping the shit. Because you've never seen a miracle. You imagined it was you. Oh, you did. You did. We all wish it was us. That's why we believe. All the best memories are hers. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Mr. Patrick Green. Hey, Jamie. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing so well. Can I just say two reasons why I'm doing so well? One is we're talking about the best film soundtrack in the history of film soundtracks tonight, which is, you know, other than maybe Elliot Goldenthal's Alien 3 score, this, I think this is probably takes my, my top spot personally. That's one reason. The second reason is we have with us tonight somebody who has been here as a guest many times, somebody who has been here as an inspiration every time he's ever been on, somebody who's been a friend for a long time, and somebody who is finally, officially part of the perfect or- <laughs> perfect organism. Here we go. I'm talking about <laughs> Alien 3, and I'm getting thrown off. Since finally, 1940, this is perfect the- organism? I thought this was something else. <laughs> Did you not prepare for this? I'm here to talk about Blade Runner. Dr. Robin Bunce, who is now uh, officially contributing host on Shoulder of Orion and will be appearing, uh, you know, somewhat more frequently and having more input into episode ideas and stuff like that. Dr. Robin Bunce, welcome officially on behalf of all of us here. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's it's enormous fun to be here. I'm enormously excited to talk about, as you say, the best score ever written. Damn right it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited to talk about this this score. It, It is the first, probably, it is the first soundtrack when I was a kid, mid mid level teenager in 1920, <laughs> 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 um, that really touched me in a way that no other score had. I'd been listening to the score for Terminator 2. Mm. It was dark and it's good, but it's just a whole different. Whereas Blade Runner, when it released in 94, it took me into a world. It took me first into the world of Blade Runner before the film did. I had seen the film here and there but everyone had mm-hmm. been talking about this score and I bought it mm. and it was just transportive. And I am so excited to talk about the first version of this score 
and mm. what it means to us. Yeah, a, a clarification note for people who want to go do some listening, you know, while we're talking or maybe pause us talking and go listen to what we're talking about. We're dealing with the soundtrack release that was put out in 1994 by Warner Music. It's on a couple of different labels, depending on where in the world you're accessing it from. But this is the first semi, basically official version of it. There was one that came out shortly mm. after the release with all these orchestral reimaginings, which was not the actual score to the film. The 1994 release is the one that incorporates dialogue. It's you know one that Vangelis had some control over, and it's one that also has music not heard in the film, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the one that sort of was the first definitive release that people could get their hands on. And so tonight, that's the one that we're going to be talking about. And so if you go on Apple Music, if you go on Spotify, that's probably the one that you're going to find. So Robin, you talked about your father introducing you to Blade Runner when you were 12. Was mm. it an experience for you where that's when you first heard the score or because a lot of people heard the score first, like me, and then right. really immerse themselves in the film? What, what about you? Um, for me, it was the film first. And okay. but when I say that we put on VHS tape and then the music hit and it was like incredible because it was like nothing else I'd ever heard. And it was the music I'd always wanted to hear. I didn't know it before I put the VHS tape in and press play. But like I say, when I heard it, I thought, Oh my goodness, I'm finally hearing the future. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing about it was that it was so intimately bound up with the pictures. I don't know how Vangelis did it, and I'm not sure Vangelis ever did it quite as successfully with any of his other amazing scores. But there was something about the music and the pictures which which just synced together so perfectly. And I don't mean synchronized in the obvious kind of um, kind of click track way of synchronization. I mean that the two things were kind of one. Um, and then having seen the film and heard the soundtrack, and of course I watched the whole thing to the end because I loved every second of it. And obviously at the end of the, um, the theatrical release, it says, oh, this, um, the soundtrack will be available on Polydor. Um, so I'm watching it in 1985 or whatever. So I think, oh great, I'll go out and get the soundtrack on Polydor. Um, and then that starts nine years of my life where I am just constantly searching for the soundtrack. <laughs> and with the invention of email, I find a new use of my life, which is to email people in the States and say, hey, if you've got the bootleg, if you've got the bootleg, what can I send you? And um, it leads me to buying pretty much everything that's available from Vangelis. So yeah, so it led to nine years of intense frustration. And then finally I got hold of the soundtrack. So that's kind of how I approached it. Um, but yeah, my dad um, was a big soundtrack guy. He loved soundtracks. We had loads of soundtracks on vinyl and 12 inch vinyl, but there was nothing like um, Blade Runner. And there was really nothing like my obsession with Blade Runner. It's interesting that I think we're going to do another episode at some point. Hopefully you can be on that one too, Dr. Bunce, where we talk about mm -hmm. uh, the crazy, you know, history of the different editions of this, mm. the bootlegs, mm. the Esper edition, all the different things people could get their hands on over time, because in some ways it's just as fascinating and illuminating as <laughs> all the cuts of the film that came out too, mm. right? Like, I mean, what are the chances that the most recut and confusingly edited movie ever yeah. also has the most confusingly recut and reissued mm. and edited bootleg soundtrack mm. of all time, right? Like it's, it's a soundtrack in a film that like you say, are so inextricably linked, right? The visuals and the sound world and the mm. music and the diegesis and the Foley and the dialogue. It's like, I mean, how many other soundtrack albums are there out there that came out mm. in the early 1990s that incorporate that much of the film's dialogue that's recut so interestingly that incorporate that mm. much of the sound of, of Los Angeles, like the way that this does. It's one of those things that, uh, it's just, you know, like I said, it's inextricable to the, to the mm. movie. And I think mm. there's nowhere, 
that's you know more apparent than in the the final thing on this entire soundtrack that you mm. know tears and rain which we're going to talk about when we get there but i know before we do that we want to go through sort of you know title by title so again this is an invitation mm. anybody listening to it who hasn't done this yet get your copy of it ready um and i think you know before we get into that we're going to do some kind of high level a little round table moment where we talk mm. a little bit about you know what the score means to us and that kind of thing so take advantage of us blabbing for a minute to pull up your version <laughs> of the soundtrack so you can be ready to listen i'll start super briefly i think that it's it's a it's an amazing soundtrack because it's one of the first and only soundtracks to this day that exists just as prominently as an actual album release as it does music accompanying a film. And there's mm. a lot of reasons for that, one of which is that Vangelis, as he was composing it, was composing it as a suite of cohesive music, right? And a lot of the music that he wrote for it was cut. But when you listen to, for example, the 94 issue which incorporates some other music that wasn't used in the film you really get a sense that this was a through composed work from beginning to end that was supposed to be heard together mm. and so when you listen to the soundtrack it's no wonder people love it so much because it is just like complete immersion it is just you just fall into it you know, some people complain about one more kiss dear you know understandably because <laughs> it's kind of out of you know it's a little pastiche i adore that song as i said too. in the show but it is, it's the only moment that's not just like falling down this wormhole of reverb and synthesizers. You know what I mean? And it's, it's almost inconceivable to think that Vangelis had won the Chariots of Fire award, the Oscar for that, like weeks before he was working on this film. Or, or at the, it was like the same, you know, because it's 1981 that he was doing this. So basically he won the Oscar and in the process of doing that composed, you know, potentially the most landmark science fiction film score ever written mm. in popular mm. culture. And I just think like, what an amazing time, you know, he had Nemo studios set up. He had mm. all these amazing new synths at his disposal. He had everything working together. He was composing this music with this video monitor set up, just reacting to it, improvising to it after having had 10 or so years of this really successful solo career. And he was just at this moment in his life, where he was completely positioned to make miracles. And we happen mm. to have a film that is a miracle in and of itself with the soundtrack that somehow feels even maybe more miraculous than the movie to me. So so for me, this has always been something that feels very special. It's one of the only scores that I, I, I can't run to it. Like I can't play it in my headphones when I'm out on a hike. Mm. I can't drive with it on. It's something that I get so sucked into that the world evaporates and it's like mm. the only thing that exists is this music and myself floating in it. I mean, there are tracks in here where you put on a really good pair of headphones and it feels like you are not on earth, you know? Mm. It is just an amazing score. And yeah. not and just as a testament to Vangelis, it's an amazing score, not only the way it's composed, but he performed it all too and produced mm. it. Like this is just mm. his complete work. And he had so much gift. Uh, mm. And I just feel really lucky that the movie we talk about so much happens to be the movie accompanying that gift on display mm. for so much, you know, incredible time. Can I just say high level analysis? I just want to put out there the CS80, the Yamaha CS80, um, because as I say, watching this film and hearing the soundtrack led me on a kind of nine year um, mission to fight to get as much of the soundtrack as I could. Um, but it also led me on a mission to get as many synthesizers as I could. Because, <laughs> because at the time, I didn't know what the CS80 was. Um, all I knew is that this was created on synthesizers. So I got myself a Roland synthesizer, I got myself a bunch of Korg synthesizers. I got myself a Yamaha C CS05 
the kind of baby brother of this CS80. I got myself all kinds of stuff, drum machines, because, um, yeah, because I, I wanted to recreate it. I wanted to do everything I could to understand how it worked. Um, and obviously, I never really got that that far until I downloaded a, a CS80 emulator. But yeah, but there's something about Vangelis in 1981, 1982, with the digital reverbs and the analog synthesizers and these really early samplers and these kind of really early drum machines. And there's something about all of that coming together, which is just just amazing and astonishing. And when you think about it in terms of the other things he's producing at the time, like See You Later, like um, the Antarctica soundtrack, like um, Chariots of Fire, all of all of those kinds of things, and there's one other in that in this kind of suite of things he's producing, which is escaping me, which will no doubt come back to me. Yeah, when you think about all of those things, I think there's something very special about the Blade Runner soundtrack. It feels more multi-dimensional. It feels kind of bigger, and it feels richer than any of the other things he's producing at the time. Um, so yeah, so much as I love his other work, this is this will always be the thing for me. Um, and yeah, much as I love, much as I love everything he's released so far to do with Blade Runner, I always kind of feel there's more out there, and I'm looking forward to when we finally get our hands on everything. I would completely agree with everything you with everything you said. Uh, there's something about Vangelis's score to Blade Runner that's primordial. It's like digitally mm. primordial, and mm. there's something, and I would equate him to Philip Glass in a way in terms of what I feel when I listen to this music. The only way that I can describe this is the film interstellar when they're in the he's in the tesseract and he's in time and he's moving through time and he's trying to find the right moment that's what vangelis's music sounds like to me and philip glass where they take they take the, their instruments and their talent and they throw us into time in a way that it doesn't feel like the 1980s mm. Like uh, I listen to the score to Koyanis Gatsi all the time. Um, and I'm bringing him up just because I feel similar to Vangelis, certainly with the Blade Runner score. And it's, there's this ephemeral quality to it where, and also unlike Philip Glass, Vangelis, when he composes, you can feel its organic quality because the mm. songs don't end, they fade out. Because mm. I don't know if that's how he composes. A lot of composers are more formal. Patrick could probably definitely would know more about this, but from my love of scores and the scores that I listen to, even some of my favorite scores, like Score for Return of the King by Howard Shore. Howard Shore. That? Yeah, there's clear. This is the beginning of the of the track mm. of the of, of the score for or of the music for this moment, and this is the end of the music for this moment. Whereas with Vangelis, mm. it just weaves in and out, and there is no ending, and it just morphs into the next scene, and then you're on the street. And then you hear maybe a guitar and then you hear mm -hmm. someone calling out and then you hear something on the road and then you hear the mm. synth rise. So it's this nebulous living thing. And mm. I think music is a living thing, but a lot of music is very finite in terms of your experience of it. Oh, here's this and here's the end. And that was great. Yeah, let, let's listen to it again. Vangelis, his style, certainly the score we're talking about mm. tonight, it doesn't end. It doesn't have that quality. It lives and lives and lives, mm. which to your point, Patrick, where you can't listen to it when you're jogging. You can't listen to it. You know, <laughs> I'll hit a tree if I try yeah, to listen it's to this thing that, it's like It's like you're inside the nucleus of a cell yeah. and it's just changing and splitting and splitting again mm. and you're in there and you're with it and you're a part of it. And 
that's for me why this score haunts me so well. Beautifully said. There's a lot of things in both of, the, of your comments that I want to touch on, but I'm going to save it for because I think these things will come up as we go through the tracks. But mm. there's a lot of interesting reasons why Philip Glass and, and uh, Vangelis might feel similar and different at the same mm. time to you, Jamie. Mm-hmm. I think super briefly, one reason is that Philip Glass composes his music you know, on paper first. And so because of that, there's a structural, you know, also his music is very repetitive. It's very numerical. It's very Mm -hmm. much about, you know, adding and subtracting time and playing with time in a way that kind of obliterates it a little bit. So for him, it's all about, you know, planning out how we can make that happen as an effect, you know, and he was very influenced by similar things to what Van Gelles was influenced by things like tabla music, things like ragas Mm -hmm. in India, right? Um, things like a lot of world music, like gamelan music. There's gamelan on the soundtrack to Blade Runner, and there's a lot of gamelan music in the music of Philip Glass as well. And so there's a lot of things that are similar about them, but the difference with with Vangelis is that he improvised almost all of this soundtrack as an emotional response to the film footage that he was watching on his tape mm-hmm. monitor, right? Mm-hmm. So for So part of why it doesn't really end, I think, is because he was just in the moment as he was watching it, and then mm. the scene changed, and he was like, okay, I guess that's the... That's where that ends. <laughs> not to say that he, and this is not lazy at all. And this is not like being, you know, anti-intellectual or something. I'm not taking that away from him at all. What I'm saying is he was most concerned with capturing his emotional response <clears> to what he was <throat> watching. And that is not lazy at all. That's actually incredibly difficult to do, especially in such a rigorous way with so much happening in the sound world and so much going on and so many layers of meaning and nuance. But because of that, it's very much, uh, responsive to the moment as opposed to something planned out ahead mm. of time. And I think that's maybe part of why it feels uh, at some at once more and less intentional than some of Philip Glass's music. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which, a really great segue, I think, is into the soundtrack, starting with the main titles, which is a mm. really good example, I think, of what you're talking about, which is the way that he plays with time, right? It starts without any sense of hurrying to get anywhere it starts with an arrival right Mm -hmm. so uh i i can start with a couple of my kind of initial thoughts about the main title music if you guys want to you know jump on afterwards so first thing that sticks out to me about this is the cs80 right this is Mm. of course this is the legendary synth that robin has been talking about this was the thing that Hans Zimmer was fighting to get his, his hands on to get it working in the studio because it was catching on fire. This is this legendary synthesizer that defines a lot of mid 80s and early 80s music, but that Vangelis used so orchestrally and so beautifully. And I love how in this track you hear it playing this theme like a trumpet. You hear it mm. rising out of this cascading orchestra of synthesizers and chimes and bells. It's almost like it's the featured soloist and this is a concerto supporting it. And that CS80 just cuts through the texture with this beautiful tone, and it just rises up like the spinner over the city. And every time I hear this, uh, I just feel this sense of, like, I have stumbled into an alternate reality, and I don't want to leave, you know? Hmm. Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when I first got this album. So I was doing my first degree at this time. I was in Canterbury, um, in Kent. Um, and we had a record shop in Canterbury called Our Price. Um, English listeners, British listeners will remember this. Um, so I was there at nine o'clock in the morning, bought it, then um, then ran up um, the hill to my college, to my room um, where I had a CD player and put it on immediately. Um, I'm gonna break the mood at the moment and say my first impression was I was disappointed. And the reason I was disappointed is that I wanted the soundtrack as it appeared on the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I so I was immediately confronted with this kind of wall of noise 
and this dialogue. And I thought, no, 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 this is not what I want. I want the I want the drum beat, and then I want some silence, and then I want the CS80 to come in with a really high note. I knew, you know, I knew this, I knew this thing, you know, intimately, and I knew what I wanted. And the other weird thing about it is my first impression was that the the kind of um what's the word? The kind of ambient kind of droning um, chords that you're getting underneath the um, underneath the dialogue. That again, it sounded to me like Vangelis was using synthesizers that were created in the 90s to give us that. And then quite quickly, we get into the into the original score. But I was thinking I'd heard the 1492 soundtrack, I'd heard Vangelis's album, The City, for example, and this and I, I had a Korg M1 synthesizer. And this sounded very much like the Korg um, o, O1W, which Vangelis used quite a lot on the um, on 1492. So yeah, so my initial impression was, oh, Vangelis is kind of bringing this 90s synthesizer, and we've got to sit through like a minute or so of this before we get into the good stuff. So yeah, so sorry to um, um, sorry to spoil the mood, but yeah, when we got into the good stuff, you know, as soon as as soon as the CS80 comes in, as soon as the the kind of quote unquote proper music comes in, I was I was kind of I loved it, but yeah, but that was my first impression. My first impression, sorry, Vangelis, I know you're listening. Sorry about that. My first impression. Was <laughs> but We're gonna we get a one star rating in the App Store, and it's gonna yeah. be from Vangelis sitting <laughs> exactly in the studio himself. That's right. <laughs> that's curious. Mm. Do you think that that's the case? They he re-recorded it on a more recent piece of equipment. That's why it sounds different. Only, only the first like minute. Only okay. I would never have known that. I mean, just it has a different quality because it's digital rather than analog. Is and it's kind of based on samples rather than based on oscillators. Um, And then all of a sudden, once the dialogue stops, and once once the um, once you you know you get the sound of the um of the printer printing out sorry for those of you watching yes. I'm, I'm, I'm i'm miming the printer working the and then all printer. of a sudden <laughs> then all of a sudden you get this incredible i think it's a yang shing um this chinese dulcimer mm-hmm. instrument you get the you get the kind of glissando on that it's a yeah. double glissando which is mirrored on a on an analog square wave i think um and as soon as that comes in you're into the proper soundtrack and you're into the analog world of the early 1980s and all of a sudden the hair stood up on my neck i'm uh, you know on the back of my neck and i'm into the soundtrack and it's amazing but yeah but for the first minute i was i was disappointed um and yeah and bear in mind i'd been wanting the soundtrack for nine years and i just pushed it on and pressed play and i didn't get what i wanted so yeah so it was kind of yeah there we are anyway um the other things i wanted to say about the opening the main titles is it just it demonstrates all of the things I love about the Blade Runner soundtrack in the sense that you've got all of these crazy things coming out of the the CS80. One of the features of the CS80 that I love so much is it has this dynamic um, voltage controlled filter. That is to say, if if you're familiar with kind of like entry level analog synthesizers, you've got a voltage controlled filter. And if you want, if you want to change the way the filter works, and in so doing, change the quality of the note that's coming out of the synthesizer. You have to do it with sliders or with 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 um, with faders or whatever. Um, but the CS80 has got these two faders that you can set, and it, and that will give you a dynamic. It, it will mean that the filter is going to change in real time without you having to address anything. And I think the thing about this, the, the the Blade Runner soundtrack that I love so much is that every single note is changing in real time all the time. Um, so you've got you've got a kind of every note has this kind of energy to it. Um, the other thing that I love about the opening titles is the kind of dynamic um, LFO, the low frequency oscillator. So you've got lots of things which are happening where Vangelis is is set up um, an LFO um, pattern and and, he, and he's changing and he's changing it. So you get a kind of fast rhythm going to a slow rhythm, and you get and I think he's doing that with the kind of percussive sounds that he's getting out of that. 
Um, and yeah, and, and I, like I say, I love the, the Yan Shin that he's using, and I love the way that it, he's got the glissando there, and it's mirrored by the, the synths. Um, and the texture is so deep with all the bells and everything. Um, and going back to the idea of Philip Glass, I always thought that there's a kind of reference to minimalism in here, and not in the sense, it's not minimalism in the sense of, because um, obviously this is a very maximalist score, Vanglis is throwing everything at it. But what he's got is he's got a series of different um, loops which are going. Um, and so he's got a loop on, on which sa what sounds like an electric piano. He's got a loop on the bells. Um, and this is particularly at the end of, um, of, of, the, of, this, um, of, of the opening titles sequence. And also just going back to the film. So this is sadly not on the 1994 release, but you know, there's the, um, there's the kind of bell loop and the electric piano loop, which under, um, which kind of plays under this opening scroll. Um, yeah, so that always reminded me of minimalism because you've got these loops going on on top of each other and not quite synchronizing. Um, so yeah, um, so there we are. So yeah, I just think it's, um, once you get into that, I think that's just an incredible piece of music. Um, and it's like, sorry, I'm gonna quote a different film now. It's kind of like traveling without moving. It's like you're sitting in your chair, you're listening to the music, but it's taking you somewhere. And I can almost, when I listen to it, even today, I can almost feel my body moving. Um, so yeah, so it's an incredible piece of music and I was so pleased when that happened and I heard it and it was like, oh my goodness. And the quality was just crystal clear um, because Van Angelis is just such a great producer. And here I had this wonderful thing, a CD, which is never going to have any dropout. It's never going to have any, you know, it's never going to have all the problems that are associated with vinyl. And I could put it on and I could just immediately get it in this amazing quality. So yeah, so my nine year search for this piece of music was finally over. Wow. Much like you, when I first heard the score, I was one, mm. I wondered, where's the opening? Because you wanted to open the same way and it didn't. Mm. But for me, being a lay person, in terms of like, I just wanted to be immersed in the world, it was perfect. Mm. It, was, it was everything that I wanted it to be. I'm going to pause just for a minute and say one score that people don't talk about a lot that was produced by Vangelis is the score for 1492, which I mm. think is illustrious and gorgeous and underrated and one of the most beautiful scores I've ever heard and it just doesn't get a lot of discussion it would be a great frame rate mm. we'll be, have we not done that yet that's I know I it's on our I list mean, I don't know it'd be weird to talk about a, a score on a frame rate we could even do it well we can talk about the movies really Scott we can talk about the movies yeah too, yeah man. yeah for sure hearing that synth and that sound and mm. there's a similar sound in the 2049 score too where they're just droning away but it's, it's, it's transportive. A lot of the score for uh, the original film reminds me of growing up in Chicago. Big, huge city at night. I hear those soundscapes. I hear Blade Runner blues. I know we'll get to that later. It reminds me of growing up in a big city and feeling mm. lost in a big city. And because when I first heard that, I was 13 or 14. So, you know, I, I didn't leave Chicago until I was 23. So mm. almost 10 years later. And so much of that I connect to Chicago, but that's compartmentalized. Like, yes, part of me does, but mostly it transport me into this gorgeous, sumptuous world that was created by Ridley Scott. But mm. the world is only as beautiful as it is because we have that score. Mm. That score, it was able to iterate. The opening is able to iterate this immersion. Like when you see mm. the Hades landscapes and the fire and all of that, the score is, I don't know how he's doing it, but the score is informing what we're seeing. Mm. It's informing this, the world is in a terrible place, but there's hope and mm. there's beauty 
and there's darkness and it's all happening at the same time. I don't know what score does that so perfectly. Mm. So yeah. that first that first track, I'm there. I'm transported. And as you say, it, the first track is amazing because it's got the melancholy and the joy simultaneously, or not mm. perhaps not quite simultaneously. I think the first phrase gives you the melancholy, and the second phrase gives you the hope. And it's just yeah. And Vangelis does it the whole way through the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that there's kind of melancholy and longing and, and perhaps nostalgia for a future that's lost or a past that's lost or something, mm -hmm. but also a joy and a hope. It's just incredible. I don't know how he does it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just stunning. There's, again, so many things that both of you said so eloquently that I want to revisit, and, and I'm going to briefly, and then we'll move along because we do have other tracks to get to, but <laughs> it's, this is going to happen because there is so much to talk about. Just briefly, Jamie, I, I love what you said about feeling both sort of lost in the city, um, but also sort of in awe. And, and Robin, what you were just saying there as well, there's, there's a sense of, you know, having been in Chicago at night and having been in Los Angeles at night, those are two cities where this music fits for me because it feels at once magisterial. Like it feels like you're just in awe of the scale and the amount of people and the amount of, of, of built environment around you. And yet it's kind of empty at night. There's a sense of like the streets, there's wind in the streets and, um, and, you know, and, and it's quiet. So you're in this kind of like, almost like this enormous cathedral filled with these ghosts, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of night times in New York city, New York never sounds like the soundtrack to me. New York is like, it's never mm. quiet enough for this music to feel appropriate, but there's something about the sense of feeling kind of lost in a beautiful place, feeling tiny in the magnificent that I think this soundtrack really gets at, especially with this first track. So I'm glad you brought that up. So also just a couple quick things that um, Robin had said, you were talking about a growth and decay, right? The way that the CS80 uh, mm. and a lot of the synths sort of evolve over time, that there's always mm. motion in the notes. Mm. That's something we talked about quite a bit on the last episode on the 2049 soundtrack, because that was mm. something that both Zimmer and Wallfish were really trying to get at. And that mm. they thought that, you know, Part of the beauty of synthesizers is that if they're programmed well and they're used mm. intelligently, they they mutate over time, right? Like mm -hmm. the way that the filter sweeps work and the way that things sort of take off and run. So you give these things a lot of room to play with, which means a lot of arpeggios that happen over a long period mm. of time, a lot of sustained drones that can change over time, mm. right? And um, and the CS80, the way that, that Vangelis uses it just allows that incredible mutation and growth to happen mm. and that's why it doesn't sound dated even though it is like the epitome of an 80s mm. soundtrack it doesn't feel like the soundtracks to a lot of 80s films or media because here's the thing is that Vangelis was using a lot of things that we hear on for example Janet Jackson albums in the 80s mm. right he has a CR 5000 drum machine he has a vocoder <laughs> you know he has a, a the he has an FM synthesizer. He has an emulator. Mm -hmm. He has all these things that you hear all over the place in the '80s that are primarily used for you know in service of a doo -doo 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 -doo, mm -hmm. or, you know some sort mm -hmm. of like a punchy you know synth part or a pad or a, you know one of those things. The way that he uses them is deconstructivist almost. It's like mm -hmm. what is the music inside this synthesizer and how can I mm -hmm. draw it out? How can I give it the mm -hmm. space to come out of itself? And I feel like. Um, that's why there's so many moments like that where we feel displaced in time as we, we feel mm. like, Ooh, I'm floating. It's because mm. the synth is like running free, you know? And I just, mm. I just love that you mentioned that last thing I want to say is uh, there's a textural thing going on here that you alluded to Robin, that I want us to keep in mind and our listeners to keep in mind as we go through is that Vangelis was not, although he's known as a synth composer because he 
mm. changed the way film scoring worked with his synth soundtracks. He was also immensely gifted at, you know, other instruments, a lot of them being world percussion instruments, like the mm, young chain mm. you were talking about, right? So um, when the chimes on that, on that, you know, Asian instrument are morphing into that sine wave on the synthesizer, mm. that he's telling us something, he's signaling something at the very beginning that's mm. intentional and important, which is that this world is a bridge, that this world mm. is polyglot, you know, that this mm -hmm. world is not just the world of the synthesizers. It's not just the world of percussion. It's something that encompasses everything. And mm. in Blade Runner, you know, this idea of more human than human, nothing is quite as it seems. Everything is more mm. than it seems. And by bringing these traditions together and mutating them and dovetailing them into each other, and that happens again and again and again, he's mm. creating something larger than, quote unquote, just the synth soundtrack. He's creating a, a true work of art. Mm. Um, I want to move us along to Blush Response, if that's cool, which is, of course, the second track on the on the 1994 release. And it's the first uh, that incorporates real dialogue. It's a conversation mm. between Rachel and Deckard, which is, um, you know, drowned in reverb like a cathedral again. Uh, but again, it's happening in the Tyrell building. There's a lot of reverb to begin with. Mm. Um, this one is one of my favorite early tracks. I think it's just so great. And it also gets at something that came up in our last track conversation which is minimalism this one has i think a more mm. overt use of it especially mm. because as the uh rhythm picks up about halfway through we start getting into this you know this um this repetitive beat pattern that is giving us a really discernible pulse right so a lot of minimalist mm. music does that it sets up a pulse and it sets up a pattern of notes and then it repeats it like you said it loops it over and over again until you kind of can zone out into it a little mm. bit um, and this one eventually gets there. But of course, before it does, it very prominently features drone. It features one sustained mm. note or one sustained harmonic area that indu induces a sense of meditation. It induces mm. a sense of stasis, of timelessness. And that drone maintains basically all the way through till the end of this track, even as the rhythm picks up and even as a lot of other things are in motion, there's this very consistent pedal point is another way to look at it, right? Where you have one note that's mm. kind of steamrolling through. And I think that that is another thing Vangelis does really well is that even if he gives you a lot of motion in one sense, whether that's mm. rhythmically, harmonically, melodically, there's another element that balances out that is very static. And so in this one, even though it feels like it's moving quickly, it's in some ways not moving anywhere because harmonically it's basically the same thing all the way throughout. Mm. One more thing I want to point out is another thing Van Gellis does a lot in his music, uh, which is that this uses modes. So for mm. those of you who don't know what that uh, means, basically the idea of a mode is it's a way you can organize notes into a scale, like, you know, a, a regular major or minor scale, but it's not a regular major or minor scale. It's something mm. older than that where um, it plays with what we expect by altering how far apart some of those notes are. So this is an example of what's called the Phrygian mode, which if you have a piano nearby or a synthesizer, you can do for yourself by starting on an E and then going up to the next E and not pressing any black notes at all, just pressing the white notes between two E's on a piano. So you'll notice right away it sounds minor, right? It sounds like it's mm. sort of sad if you want to look at it like that. But there's something very interesting going on, which is that that first note is uh, is only a half step away from the second note. There's this tiny little space between them. And that gives it this very exotic, very old flavor that I think makes this sound almost like it's from the Renaissance or from some sort of a Middle Eastern, you know, fair somewhere in the 17 or 1800s. There's something very ancient about it because, of course, modes predated the major and minor scales mm. that we know so well. So when you're hearing these modes throughout, and I'll point out a couple more of them, um, 
there's a reason it sounds old or there's a reason it sounds exotic. It's because it actually is. Of course, Vangelis had a, a background in not only film scoring, but in rock music and in jazz music. Mm, mm. And this is an example of a jazz technique, right? If you look back at Miles Davis, for example, he's an example of modal jazz. When you hear his stuff like, you know, Bitches Brew, for example, that is uh, a band getting rid of all of the conventions of major minor harmony and the keys mm -hmm. people are used to and saying, let's just pick a mode and jam in that mode. So we don't have to go anywhere. We can play within this scale. And Vangelis, while he's improvising, is picking a mode that feels right to him. And he's, you know, iterating within that mode and coming mm. up with this melody that we hear in this, which has this beautiful little, that little half step, <laughs> the which is very haunting. And I just think is really effective. And also, it doesn't sound anything like any other, you know, uh, melody I've ever heard in a film soundtrack. It just feels like Vangelis to me. Yeah, no, I think the modal nature of a lot of this music is one of the things that explains why it can be simultaneously melancholy and hopeful. Because, as you say, he's not locked into major minor. And yeah, and going back to um, just very briefly, I know we've moved on, but going back to the main titles, I think that's one of the things that's so intriguing about the main titles, um, that you're not 100% sure, you know, what what the exact emotional response should be to it. Because as you say, we're, we're kind of, we're in, we're in modal territory rather than in more standard major minor territory. Um, again, my response to Blust response was, I'm walking up the hill in Canterbury in 1994. I'm seeing these words blush response. I think, oh, fantastic. This is going to be this piece of music where, um, you know, where Deckard meets Rachel for the first time. And it's that lovely um, electric piano thing that you hear kind of fleetingly right. in the film. Um, and then I'm confronted with the, the thing on the CD. So, yeah, once again, I'm afraid to say I was disappointed with this track. And I kind of feel that electronic hand claps have no place in the Blade Runner universe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but it's a free world. It's a free cosmos. So, you know, um, I found it hard to love. But I do take your point. There is a clear harmonic relationship and there is some textual relationship with what's with 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 the music that I love in Blade Runner. And in terms of um, the of the kind of link to minimalism, I totally get that. I kind of feel it's kind of a bit more mechanical um, than the stuff that Vangelis puts in the film. It feels a bit more clocked rigidly. Um, whereas I think the stuff in the film, you know, it's only right at the very end that we get um, an arpeggiator dominating the scene. Most of it seems to be, it seems to kind of breathe rather than have a, a kind of clocked pulse. So I guess that, that I found a bit jarring about blush response, but you know, what do I know? So you're saying till the end of the film, right? Until yeah. the yeah, elevator right doors the end, yes. close, right? And then we get right, right, yeah. Yeah, and this one, uh, the way it appears mm. in the album, you get a taste mm. of that, right? Like you're saying mm. with, with the with the yeah. Jamie, go ahead. Sorry. No, to to Robin's point, it makes sense for the the scene though, where he's very he's doing this very rigid questionnaire in this machine, and the music's reflecting that that it's it is repetitive. It's a little mm. bit droning. It's not that it's not interesting. It's very, mm. it's also very, um, it sounds like it's from the East. It has an Asian feel mm. to it, um, but it isn't. It's just mm. the way he's playing, which you guys broke down in a way that I would I could never do because I don't understand music that way. I just experience it emotionally. But there's this, it also reminds me of Rachel too, because, and the way you guys are describing this music, even the opening, it, reminds me or it makes me think of the movie even more and mm. we're not sure what we're hearing well we're not we're not sure what rachel is we're not sure what these things are 
we're not sure what world we're in. I mean, yes, we're in mm. a version of Earth, a version of LA in the future, mm. um, now slash future past. And the music really enhances that. What is this? Mm. What are they? What are we hearing? We're not sure what we're hearing. Where is it going? We don't know where it's going. Um, and will there be a finality to this? And uh, with blush response, you know, the questions go on and on and on. Mm. And the music in tandem also goes on and on and on until mm -hmm. it kind of drifts off and does what Vangelis does. It changes and goes into the next scene. But I, I mm. find this piece of music, I don't, I wouldn't ever say it was boring, but it is very monotonous. But also what he's doing is monotonous as well. You can see it in Rachel's face. She's kind of tired of it. Mm. He's, he also is confused. He doesn't really know what he's talking to. Uh, mm. She could be human, but he doesn't really think so. But he he asks her what 130 questions or whatever he says, mm. Um, mm. and that and again that score really reflects that to me. Mm. It reflects the monotony of that scene, the where it's mysterious. Rachel's mysterious and it's beautiful, but it's mm. also confusing. And I think it works beautifully. It's interesting in places like this where there's a divergence between what we hear on the album and what we see or what we hear mm. when we watch the movie there. It's almost like Vangelis is recomposing his memory of watching the movie for mm -hmm. us in 1994 mm -hmm. with this mm. additional material that, you know, like, cause there's some things like Blade Runner blues, right. Which are, which are just so, you know, clearly mm. in the movie uh, that like are very memorable when they happen in the film that, you know, like they they were clearly there before, but but for things like this where I'm, where it's like, did I hear this in the movie or is this something else? Um, it's almost like he's he's composing his memory of it. Something I forgot to mention from the main titles. I'm so, we are we are gonna move on from this, <laughs> but this was something that I I didn't have a note on that I wanted to make sure because it's important. Is that of course it's the first time we hear the tears and rain melody. Oh yeah, that is very it's very important to remember that because we hear it in the beginning mm -hmm. on the CS80 just floating above the clouds, and then we hear it in the end of the film. And it's transmogrified and it's just mm. like the most sublime fucking music cue in a movie ever. Mm. And and there's a reason for that that I want to get to, which we talked about a little bit in 2049. I'm going to bookmark that for the rest of the soundtrack until we mm. get to the end of it. But I wanted to make mm. sure I said that. Um, I want to move us along to Wait For Me. This is one where my note for this just says ear orgasm. This is one of those songs <laughs> that it's not musically the most interesting thing. It's not even the most Blade Runner-y feeling thing, but something about it just feels so great to listen to. In a lot of ways, it's the most conventional thing on the whole mm. album. I mean, it has the most traditional sort of rock band feel, sort of soft rock, right? There's a discernible bass line. There's a repetitive mm. chord progression. There's a drum kit in it, essentially. Uh, there's a. It's the first time we hear Dick Morrissey banging out a saxophone solo, <laughs> um, you know, there's a little bit of dialogue in it, but there's so much reverb. You basically can't even hear what they're talking about. It's just, it's a sound world. And yet it is a sound world that I just want to take a bath in. I just love the way he produced this fucking track, the way that that baseline interweaves with the harmony above it is just, it is just beautifully made. It reminds me a lot of Enya actually, Jamie, who I know you like quite That's a lot. Um, the way that it's produced is just, to me, it feels like just, uh, enormous. It feels like just this enormous track. And I just, I just love it. It's a, it's a pleasure to listen to for me. The thing it reminds me of is Van Gallis' album, The City. 
Um, it sounds a bit like Morning Papers. It sounds a bit like Nerve Center. These are two of the tracks on the A side for those of you still using vinyl. It also sounds a bit like, I don't know, I think it might be Red Lights and Procession on the B side. Um, and obviously Vangelis' City, the artwork from it is a bit, well, I guess maybe today we'd call it Vaporwave or something of that nature, or maybe my <laughs> daughter might have called it that two years ago. Um, so yeah, um, it's not my favorite bit of the album, I'm going to say. Um, I think the thing about Blush Response is whatever my misgivings about it, I can see a direct link to the Blade Runner soundtrack. And what you've got in Blush Response that I really like is the the kind of deep, harmonic relationship to Blade Runner and you've got you've got the I guess you've got a kind of a reconfigured version of the um, Tears and Rain theme um, just kind of put into a different mode which kind of flattens out well in my head I don't know this is this is not a particularly accurate musical description but it kind of it, it kind of flattens out the melody but it's still kind of recognizably the mel melody whereas Wait For Me just feels like it was something that he recorded for the city which didn't make the city which he's putting on the Blade Runner soundtrack and that's probably deeply unfair and I'm not claiming that's at all what happened um, also hand claps and blush response electoms in wait for me come on Vangelis what are you up to um, you're better than this so there we are but I promise I'm going to be much more positive about the, the remaining tracks on the album okay? I like this track I mean I don't like love it but it again is transportive for me I, I am not a fan of, of saxophone I've never have been to me a saxophone is like the drag queens of instruments it's just overly dramatic it's overly emotive it's just it's just all over the place um and but i love it in this score i do it feels like home it feels like growing up in a big city it feels like being in downtown metropolitan chicago mm. on mm. a sunday afternoon um but when it's dusk um but it, it but it also really reflects the the time of Blade Runner, where they're at, like yes, things the world is darker, things are are more dire, but much like we are now adjusting to a world of COVID and will forever be until it, which I don't know if it'll ever disappear. We're just <laughs> we're just you remember adjusting. all the episodes we had last year where we were like, once COVID is over, it's gonna know, be yeah, well, who know. fucking knows at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're listening to this a uh, hundred years from now. <laughs> um, but i love i love the world it takes me to it feels comforting it's that's one thing about van gelis's music that i love and i to your point i love enya but i love her because she creates worlds with her music very few artists do that Very few people like James Newton Howard, when he's really on his game, his scores are, or they're like, he's like an organic Vangelis to me. Mm. If you listen to his score for Snow Falling on Cedars or The Village, it takes me to a place that Van Vangelis does. Um, and this track really also does that. But it's also really connected to my nostalgia of growing up in Chicago, my nostalgia of being with my dad in the car driving around mm. um so it takes me mm. to a couple of different places at once so i could listen to that score and i like the mm. the the claps like i it just works <laughs> for me it doesn't feel like 80s to me it just feels mm. like a big city 
And in a big city, there's all these things going on at once. It's a cacophony of, of sound and music and talking. And to me, that's what Wait For Me sounds like. Yeah, I, I agree, Robin, that I don't think it has anything to do with Blade Runner. I, I, right. I truly don't. I think it was something that was produced around the same time in his studio that he had lying around that kind of fit the soundtrack. And similar to Jamie with nostalgia, like for me, my love for this is wrapped up in, you know, all of the years that I've been listening to the soundtrack. This is the one where I'm like, all right, it's on. We're settling into this now. Like, here we go. Because because after this point, it gets very emotional. There's a, a number of tracks mm. in a row that kind of, you know, sit pretty deep in you. But this is like just a chance to just bask in the way that Vangelis made music in the early 1980s, which was just beautiful. And, and it feels... Uh, to me, like a, like a, a real, I, I, I mean, I have to say you were mm. mentioning vaporwave. You know, I, I love a lot of vaporwave music. I love a lot of <laughs> outrun music. I have a number of mixtapes that I made of, of, you know, of mm. outrun synth music that I think is great. This kind of fits in that to me. This is the music mm. like Jamie, you're talking about driving around. This is music you throw on and you just drop like, you know, now that I have the Jeep, drop the roof on it. Right. And just <laughs> blast this shit out and the night sky and look at the stars and think like, what a, what a, what an amazing mystery it is that we are here on this world in this mm -hmm. time in this way. And I am just taking a moment to appreciate it. There's something mm -hmm. beautiful about that escapist aspect, but you're absolutely right. I don't think it actually has anything to do with Blade right. Runner. <laughs> and it's funny that there's dialogue in it too, which clearly isn't the way it is in the film. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, so that's wait for me. We're moving on to Rachel's song, Rachel with an E for some reason. This uh, is th where things start to change quite a bit. I think for me, mm. immediately, of course, there's uh, a textural shift that happens. Mm. We go from wait for me, which is just this like, you know, four on the floor rock band playing beautiful synth music to this whoosh that's coming out of the synths, which is another one of these beautiful diegetic synth moments that he puts into the soundtrack. And again, for, for people who might not be familiar with, for one thing, a lot of the terms that we're throwing around tonight, it's okay if you aren't familiar with them because we're nerds about this stuff. And please ask me or any of us to explain more of this and we will 100% very I don't understand do a lot of neither people, just say. <laughs> <laughs> well, please, please do ask Jamie because, because you know, Robin and I talk the language of synth nerds with these things sometimes and it can be, you know, confusing for people. Um, but diegetic is a term that's not synth specific it's a term from film and stage and things it's a theatrical convention the idea is that it's music or sound that originates from the actual environment that you're mm. watching right so for example mm. if somebody in a if somebody is in a scene in a movie and they're driving and the soundtrack that you're hearing at that moment turns off when they turn off the radio on the car that's like diegetic music it's coming out of the environment mm. that, you're, mm -hmm. that you're witnessing so uh, a lot of Vangelis' score and a lot of the Wallfish and Zimmer score for 2049 uses this, right? There's a lot of moments mm. where we say to ourselves, was that the soundtrack or mm. was that the spinner mm. or was that traffic outside mm. or was that the CS80 playing, right? There's a lot of really cool moments mm. like that in both of these. And this one starts with one of these, starts with this big whooshing noise, which he played in the studio and it's included on the soundtrack. But you wouldn't necessarily know that because it sounds like it's just the environment coming to life mm. or something. Um, anyway. Shortly after that, it resets the texture, like I was staying, saying. So you go from this very conventional, early 80s, beautiful studio sound to these high-plucked sounds that are almost like bells. You get these like little tiny you know, pizzicato noises mm. floating around. And then you get Mary Hopkin coming in with this essentially Celtic soprano part 
which feels way more conventional film score to me than anything else on this entire album. Not a knock by any means, because I still find this haunting and beautiful and really well constructed. Mm-hmm. But the second she comes in and she's singing that really high floaty part, again, sort of semi Enya, not quite Enya. But as mm. soon as she starts doing that, Jamie's giving me the stink eye. Um, <laughs> I feel like uh, it, it it takes me a little bit more in, for example, the James Newton Howard direction where I'm like, OK, this feels a little bit less like mm. Mangel is doing Blade Runner and mm-hmm. a little more like what I would kind of expect hearing a film score. Um, but I, even in that context, there are things going on that are distinctly Vangelis. One of them mm. is the fact that once again, it's modal. So the scale that she's singing in is the Dorian scale, which for those of you sitting at a piano, you can do this by starting on a D and playing the white notes up to the next D. And what you'll find is once again, it's a minor scale, right? Where it has a, this, you know, flat third scale degree. It sounds kind of quote unquote sad, but it has a raised sixth scale degree. So the front half is minor. And the back half is major. And because of that, you get this beautiful sense of a rising and falling mm. of darkness and light existing simultaneously. And I think that that, once again, is a great argument for why modal music is so effectively used in the soundtrack, mm. because it allows us to feel ambivalent. It allows us to feel like we don't really have expectations of where this is going because it's going in many directions at the same time. And this melody that you hear so prominently in Rachel's song is a great example of that. Yeah, Rachel's song, I I remember hearing it and the bit you described as kind of bell-like, it sounds to me, I, I guess I'd describe it as, it sounds to me like a kind of square wave, some kind of a square wave. Um, you know, obviously obviously high up and, 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 and kind of EQ'd very, very kind of bright. Um, and I think what my, my response to Rachel's song was to, to think, have I, have I heard that square wave, that the kind of square wave loop or ostinato had I heard it in the film and I kind of felt like I had somewhere and my response to this was to think well what Vangelis is doing is I remember reading an interview with him where he said oh you know what do the fans want the fans want me to release every single cue I wrote for this film and Vangelis said well I'm not going to do that I'm going to release things which I consider to be finished pieces not not these kind of little bits and pieces um so yeah so my feeling was he'd kind of come up with this idea um, he'd used it in the film briefly. It hadn't really gone anywhere in the film. It hadn't been, and what he'd done is he'd worked it up into a full track um, and commissioned, obviously, written a melody for Mary Hopkins to sing. Um, what do you reckon, Patrick? Do you think Mary Hopkins' vocal has been um, put through some kind of um, LFO or some kind of... It feels to me like there's something, or some kind of vocoder or something. Um, it feels to me like there's there's some processing going on on the vocal. There's a, a shitload of reverb on mm, it. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> uh, there could be light use of chorus mm. on it, I think. Oh, maybe that's it. Yeah, that might be, be what that. we're hearing, mm. right? But yeah, there is some, mm. I think definitely some light. It, it's interesting. The audio processing that he does varies widely throughout this. And mm. there are some tracks like uh, Memories of Green, right? For mm. example, where it's just clearly processed pianos playing mm. the whole time, right? Mm. And then there's some, there's some tracks. I like keeping people in suspense by not knowing the names of things. <laughs> then there's some tracks like this where it really is hard to tell. Like, is this processed? Mm. Is it not? Was she in the studio mm. with him? Was she somewhere else? But mm. in, in my head canon, yeah, he just has a little bit of mm. chorus on the microphone. And it's also EQ'd for a vocal, mm. which we haven't heard on the soundtrack up until this point. So it's sort of... Hard to tell, you know. For me, the beginning of the track, that 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 sound of wind, whatever he's doing, mm, that whoosh, it. and then yeah. yeah, then it sounds like raindrops. Those yes, all of that yes, sounds just like drops, and the drops mm. get a little bit louder, and they get a little bit more mm. synchronic, or I don't know if I'm using the right word. They little get 
they they become not in sync, but I feel like the water sound is telling its own story. And it's similar to, I have to relate this to 2049 because mm. there's a, on the roof, there's water dropping on Joy. Mm. Um, and you see mm. drip, drip, drip. And that's how Joy's theme is introduced. It was a more visual representation of what we're hearing. And it was like a, mm. a spin on what Vangelis did. Um, and I like, I don't, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that female vocal. It's something about it sounds a little bit off key. I don't know what it is, but it then turns into this chorus at the end. And you hear this, it, it, some of it reminds me of 1492. Um, you hear a lot of chorus in 1492. I mean, 1492 is all mm. mostly choral. It's, I love choral music. I love Enya for that same reason, but I love Vangelis for that reason too, where he creates tapestries of sound. And even in tracks that we don't like as much, it's still this tapestry of sound that's impenetrable. And this Rachel's theme is the same. It's it's very impenetrable and it's really creating a mood and it's moving mm. somewhere. And it's indescript in some ways, much like Rachel is indescript. We don't really know. She doesn't really know. Deckard mm. kind of knows. He's figuring it out. Um, mm. But again, it's really reflective of what of what we're experiencing of this character. So big fan. Yeah, I love the choral parts of the end where you just have all the. I, I wish we got more of it. That part mm -hmm. is is really is really mm. beautiful. But w would you both agree that this feels more conventional film score than other moments on the soundtrack, or or no? I would. I, I think probably I'd agree with that for the same reason that I would say that something like Wait For Me or Blush Response, they're just more conventional because all of the things that Jamie was saying earlier about the open-ended nature of the soundtrack don't really apply to those three tracks. Right. These three tracks have a clear beginning, a middle, and an mm -hmm. end. You kind of, although it kind of, it kind of merges in, it kind of merges out. You know, you know, it's got a beginning and a middle end. It's kind of, all three of them have kind of got a burst chorus structure, more or less. They've got intros and outros or whatever to some extent. So yeah, so for all of those reasons, it just sounds a bit more conventional. Whereas with um, the, um, you know, with the opening titles, it, you know, it's just this crazy, the, all of these crazy ideas coming together. It does have a beginning and an end, absolutely. But it, it's kind of more freeform. Um, whereas, you know, tracks two, three, and four, I feel are just much more four square. And it ends too, the same way it begins mm. with the dripping mm. sound. Mm. Goes off, the, you, mm. have the, you have that uh, that piece of her singing, and then it turns into a choir, but mm. still throughout that droning away of the water, of the drip, mm. drip, mm. drip, drip, yeah. and then we transition out of it. It's very interesting. I don't know mm. if I can answer. I don't know if I'm qualified to answer if it sounds like a more traditional score. I know we're talking about this track by track, and I know in this 94 release, things were kind of moved around a little bit. But if we talk about this, if we step back and talk about the score on on its own in context of the the film, for me, it's one big experience. I don't, I don't, I can't separate Rachel's theme from other things. Other tracks, as we get, as we'll get to, uh, promote or uh, cause me to give a different response to them, more of an emotional response, which I think I thought was funny that we're using these terms of responses, mm. but that's also what they're doing. It's called a blush mm. response. Like mm. <laughs> that's they're they're looking for. Well, how are they reacting? It, how they react? How they react tells us what they are. But we're also in that same as an audience. In terms of the audience participating with the film, we're doing that same thing. We're responding. How are we responding? Mm. What are we responding to? Do we know? Uh, and I again, I love how lyrical this score 
is and how active it makes us as the audience in participation with what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how subjective our relationships are with it. Like how mm-hmm. personal a lot of our feelings are about this. Like there are things in this that feel like they express one thing to me and maybe not to you or to you and not to me, but it feels like to me, I'm like, when I, I'm like, how can nobody else hear the same thing that I'm hearing in this? And then I realize <laughs> that that's kind of the point with a lot of this mm-hmm. music is it's constructed in a way that pulls you into yourself as you're listening to it. Mm. And that's, that's just a gift. I mean, that's what Schubert did with the, you know, the German song traditions, right? Like you, you, you do, you, you give people, a chance to drop into the subjective experience of art, mm. you know, to drop into this place where you are no longer told what to feel or what to think. You're no longer told this is major, this is mm. minor. You're told something third to that. You're told this is you, mm. right? And that that's just, I mean, as an artist, you know, myself, that's something that I can only hope to bring out every once in a while in the stuff that I do is because it's a really hard place to be in. And Vangelis was just pumping out albums where that was all that was happening. Mm. And it's just, mm. it's just amazing. Um, so moving on, we have probably the most controversial inclusion mm-hmm. on this album, maybe the love theme, uh, which is, uh, you know, also in, in, you know, indisputably present in the movie because it's mm-hmm. clearly at least not in the work print edition, but in other editions of the film, what accompanies the very controversial quote unquote love sequence mm-hmm. between Rachel and Deckard. And this is uh, music that a lot of people have strong opinions about. I'm I'm curious to hear what you both have to say about it. What I'll say about it briefly, um, I do love the saxophone. I play the saxophone mm. for the alto saxophone, actually. I have one in the room with me right now. I love the instrument. I think it's beautiful. I think it is, unfortunately, because of its, a lot of tonal characteristics, timbral characteristics of the way that it sounds, it has emerged as something that can be pretty easy to make fun of because- Kennedy. <laughs> right exactly it's, it's become synonymous with like adult contemporary music mm-hmm. or it's become synonymous with like you know the e street band kind of like just getting a ripping out you know saxophone solo i mean it's a charismatic instrument that has a lot going for it but it's hard to hear it divorced from that divorced from the cultural baggage we put onto it right and in a soundtrack where so many of the instruments are hard to figure out where you know we're going back and forth trying to figure out what the plucking sounds are at the beginning of the previous track mm-hmm. and if mm-hmm. it's a sine wave or it's a chime or like it, it's just you know a lot mm-hmm. of this is in that space where it's hard to tell the saxophone mm-hmm. as played in this track and in, in the love theme is just like very clearly a saxophone solo from the early 1980s for better or for worse so that's something that i deal with every time i hear this where i go like oh this is sounding kind of corny and then the back half of that fucking melody happens and Ellis <laughs> does this incredible chromatic transformation in the harmonies under that. And every single time I fall for it, I'm always like, Oh, I'm going to want to skip this love theme. And then it goes, and it just does this like incredible harmony there. And it's so beautiful. And it reminds me a lot of like late romantic music. I'll throw music theory out and then I'll shut up about it. But but briefly, <laughs> what I love about it is that you have this thing that's very clearly going one way and then you have it all of a sudden, it tonicizes the, 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 the relative minor scale that we've been playing in. So it does that and then it drops down from that into this raised second. What's tonicize? Tonicize means it, it creates for a moment the appearance of being in a new key. So okay. it so it basically uses the dominant, like the, the chord that leads to a new key to bring you to a new key, but just for a moment, that new key that you're brought to 
is the minor key that accompanies the major key that we've been listening to. So it gets dark for that one second, and then it just drops down and just gets huge and wide, and it goes up to this raised second scale degree, which is just like, uh, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful moment that feels so hopeful. And then it pulls back within itself, and it goes back down again. And it's just, harmonically speaking, it's a very intricate chromatic moment. Chromatic meaning colorful, meaning that it uses, it borrows tones from other scales. It's a, it's a, it's something that if you're not a musician and you're listening to it, you might not necessarily know why it feels the way it feels. But the way it feels as a musician listening to that is it feels like Vangelis is like is opening a flower up all of a sudden. It's taking, the, he's taking this thing that has been so predictable and so kind of color by numbers, raunchy sax solo, and giving it this moment where you know Gustav Mahler comes out of his grave and it just he just does this beautiful little <laughs> elegy and then he kind of goes back into the grave again and you're like, whoa, Vangelis, that was so sophisticated. And I love that. Mm. I love that we get moments. One more kiss is another great example of this, where we get this glimpse of him as like a very talented composer outside of this idiom that we're hearing. Mm. Where like he's able to mm. not just sustain drones all the time. He really mm. knows harmony and knows how to use texture and color really mm. well, you know, musically speaking. And I love these little glimpses we get of that. I just uh, that that particular chord progression, the second half of the theme from the love theme, to me is just one of those harmonic moments that is unforgettable to me and I just adore it every time mm. Mm. I th the love theme in terms of love thing I I think one of the reasons why we have cliches is because often cliches work and I think this is the saxophone in a love theme is a cliche but it, it's, a, it's a cliche because it works and I think the thing about Vangelis is he's such a brilliant composer that he can take a cliche and he can reinvent it um and so, and there's kind of like, although it's taking place in the 1980s, and of course the saxophonist who recorded it famously a couple of years earlier, oh no, sorry, a couple of years later recorded the saxophone riff in Careless Whisper, which is the kind of classic 1980s kind of huge saxophone moment. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, it's got all of that going against it. And yet Vangelis takes all that and I think he reinvents it. Um, and of course, I guess there's a nod to film noir here, just as in the Blade Runner blues, we've got a kind of reinvention of, of kind of film noir um, musical motifs. In the love theme, we've got a kind of reinvention of the, of, 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 um, of you know, of, of classic love themes, um, but you know, with this amazing synthesizer bass. Um, a couple of things I'd say about it. There's um, the um, the opening sax line um, is that I think it's almost all on one note, and it's all about the rhythm, which I love. It's like bomb, 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 which is weirdly just the same as one of the things he's doing with the LFO in the previous bit of music. Um, you get a bomb, 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 bomb thing with with Vangelis playing with his LFO's low frequency oscillator um, in in the piece of music which I think is known in the bootlegs as I Am The Business. So it's weird that you get this really jarring synth version of that rhythm, and then you get this really sweet saxophone version of that rhythm. Um, I think when I, when I first got Vangelis' Themes album, um, which I think was in 1990, and I thought, oh my goodness, there's some Blade Runner on here. And then I was immediately disappointed because <laughs> it was the love <laughs> theme. It was, yeah, sorry, I'm... <laughs> You'd think I wasn't a Blade Runner fan because all I'm doing is talking you through the life of disappointment. I've had yeah, it's a soundtrack. series of disappointments yeah, the first time you hear things. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so I was like, why do I want the love theme? And then I listened to it and I realized, actually, no, I always wanted the love theme. You know, Van Gelis had given me what I want, even though I didn't know what I wanted. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's just stunning. Um, the other thing I was going to say, so, yeah, so I think that's the reference back to the bomb, 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 that rhythmic idea from I Am The Business. And I think... 
because when I heard this on the film, there's obviously the Chopin's 13th Nocturne going on over the top of it. Rachel's playing on, on the piano. And when you hear it on the soundtrack album, that's missing. You get to hear what's going on in the background, so to speak. And there's all kinds of interesting things going on in the background. So in the bit where Rachel's playing Chopin over the top, so to speak, you've got this kind of really delicate, bit of electric piano going on and my feeling is that bit of electric piano is actually calling forward to the music we hear in the sequence which I think is sometimes called Morning at the Bradbury which is and and you've got these kind of two weird love stories going on in these two pieces of music you've got the uncomfortable the, the, the really uncomfortable love between Deckard and Rachel at this point and then you've got in the Morning at the Bradbury you've got this really weird love between Pris and J.F. Sebastian and I think Vangelis is kind of alluding to the weirdness of all of these love affairs by putting in a kind of musical cue, which um, in, in the love theme, which is calling forward to Morning at the Bradbury, which I think happens almost next in the film. I can't remember. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on in this love theme. And I think it's all rather, I think it's all wonderful. Um, and yeah, and now I'm an old man. I, when I hear the love theme, I just, I just adore it. And I, you know, I just love it. Yeah, highlight for me on the album against my better judgment. Well, Thank you, Vangelis, for treating us to all of these reinvented cliches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to Patrick's earlier question, in terms of that one track that we were, the track before, uh, does it sound like a, a classic piece of score for a film? To me, the love theme is classic score, saxophone. Oh, yeah. I love it too, but it's also not easy to hear because when I listen to it, what's happening is not a love theme. I mean, what's happening is not a love scene as we famously, and the film famously shows us, and we famously mm. talked about. It's a very complicated, mm. uncomfortable scene, but the music is like, oh no, baby, this is love, you know? Mm. But it's not. Mm. Um, so it's it's weird. I do like the theme. It also reminds me of growing up in Chicago. Um, but it's, it's, when I'm listening to the score, I don't, li I, I listen to the Esper score, the remastered mm. Esper mm. score. So that track is contextualized better. So, but hearing it on the 94 score, I would skip it. Not because I don't like it, but because it's not as integrated into the full experience. In the full experience of the film, I love, this, I love mm. that track. On its mm. own in the 94 version, I'll skip it. It just mm. sounds out of place. But in the film, it's not out of place. But the way that they mixed that 94 score, it just seemed, I don't know. I don't know why it just didn't. I just was like, oh, great. And I would just, you know, mm. and I think saxophone is something where when I was a kid, I really, really hated it as an adult. <laughs> um, I don't know why I did. Oh, well, I tell you why I did. There was this radio station called WNUA 95.5 Smooth Jazz, mm -hmm. and my dad listened to it. So when I was in the car with my dad, that's all he would listen to. <laughs> and, and, and the um, theme song was... And so all they fucking play was skinny jeans. <laughs> my relationship with saxophone was like, this is like adult shit. This is like the most mm. over the top, mm. like, oh God, saxophone. But as an adult now, like I can appreciate it. I still think it's a little bit of an, it's overly emotive in terms of an mm. instrument. It's too much. It's too much. Right. Like make a smaller one or something. Yeah. Use a trumpet. <laughs> well, Ke Kenny G is playing the smaller one. You do realize that he's playing. The I know. Oh, he sax. That's true. You're right. Yeah. Who is it that yeah. plays the sax? Who made the sax? Like, um, 
There's who's the artist? It was who's invented the... by Arthur Sachs. No, 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 no. I mean, like this is actual name. You know, like in the '80s, some guy was always on the saxophone. It wasn't Kenny G, because um, he plays the uh, what's that thing called? The soprano sax. You're well, you're doing a flute movement right now, but Kenny no, G plays I know, the soprano but... saxophone. <laughs> I, I, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know. Jazz flute. I, I can appreciate. Oh, you're talking. About, are you talking about? Uh... He had longer hair. I think Jethro Tull. What are you, no, no, what are you no. Doing? It doesn't, doesn't no, okay, really okay, matter. Right. But as an adult, I really appreciate the the instrument for what it is and the feeling that it conjures when you hear it. It's a very to me. It it also feels very metropolitan. It feels very downtown in a big city at night and mm. watching a jazz performance. To me, that's what the saxophone is. Then Gellis did really change it for the scene. It feels really appropriate even though it's not appropriate at all. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, so it's a complicated relationship. I like it. It doesn't belong. It, it It's manipulating us. But to Patrick's point where it kind of changes and turns and it, it morphs in the end. So mm. you're kind of like, this isn't really a love theme. And this music's saying, yeah, we're not, are we? You know? Mm. So. I think that's the key to that track for me is the first half and the back half of that particular theme, the melody are they're not mirrors of each other. They're they're almost contradicting each other for a moment before they settle back down again. Mm-hmm. There's a couple things quick I want to say. One is that, Robin, you were talking about the the you know how yeah, it has the yeah. the repeating mm-hmm. notes, sort of like the LFO mm-hmm. in the previous track. So mm-hmm. that is part of a long tradition that and that it's funny. You know, we're talking about Chopin. We I just mm-hmm. talked about Schubert. Now I'm going to talk about Schumann. These are all contemporaries in the German leader mm-hmm. scene, right? So there, a lot of these uh, German song composers were doing songs without words, right? So they were they were mm. song composers, primarily known for their art songs, but they would sometimes do unaccompanied ones or a nocturne or something. And the idea was that there's nobody singing, but the instrument playing it is mm. sounding like a human voice. And so you hear this a lot in Schumann, for example, where even in, in a piece like, like Frauen Leben Leben, where there is a singer the piano is also singing in response mm. to the singer without words going on. So there are things that make not really musical sense, like a repeated pattern of notes that are going, mm. you know, that are there. And we hear that and we think words are accompanying it. We think mm. that it's going like, Oh baby, you're looking good or something, mm. but you know, but it's not, it, there's <laughs> yeah. no words beneath it. But we, because of like the inferences that we make when we hear that in music, mm. repeated notes, we put words mm. to and that also speaks at what I think is important to understand about the saxophone and why it became so popular. Saxophone is a pretty recent instrument mm. in the history of symphonic mm. instruments, right? It's something that has only been around for a couple hundred years. Uh, and it basically took all of these things that were so lovable about the clarinet or about other wind instruments. Where shit they on them. No, <laughs> yeah, you fucking hate it. No, you know, fucking hates the saxophone. <laughs> Uh, it took all these things about it, but then it made it louder and more human and more sexual and more expressive. It uses breath in a really interesting and very evocative way that I think feels more human to us and uh, and allows us to be to be loud. So the saxophone, the reason why it fits the score so well, in addition to being, you know, clearly a film noir reference and something that feels like, you know, Chicago at night or something. The reason why is because it's the perfect analog. And I use that Mm. ironically to the CS 80 because (laughs) both of them are 
express primarily mm. expressive instruments that mm. broke the mold of their idiom, right? The mm. CS80 was the first time a synthesizer felt truly expressive the way mm. an acoustic instrument would. The uh, saxophone was the first time mm. people thought a wind instrument sounded as expressive as the human voice. Mm. And both of these instruments are just so expressive. And part of why they're so expressive is because they both change over time, right? Mm. When you hear a saxophone playing, depending on your embouchure, depending on how tight you're gripping it with your mouth, and depending on how much breath you're putting through it, you can have the sweetest sound in the world, just like this beautiful little oboe sound, or you can have a raunchy, mm. you know, heavy metal biting noise to it with the same instrument. And it, everything in between there is all these shades of color, which were mm. not available in a lot of other wind instruments at the time. Mm. Likewise, with the CS80, you can have that pure sine wave tone that everybody you know thinks of, or you can have it sounding very unstable and very weird and going through mm. all these filter sweeps and things. So these instruments, I think, are really beautiful complements to each other. And I, you know, as we go along in the soundtrack, you're going to hear him putting them closer and closer to each other in time so that sometimes it's almost unclear which one we're hearing mm -hmm. because they can sound very similar. So in this one, long story short, I think that there's a reason why the saxophone, we hear it, we have all of these weird, you know, mimetic relationships with it where we kind of tune it out. We're like, oh, it's just another mm -hmm. film score. And then it pulls us in because there's something about it that feels like we've heard it somewhere else and we're kind of listening mm -hmm. to it. And then he gets us with the back half of the melody and it's like, okay, this song is more, it's more than it appears to be. Just like the scene is more than it appears to be. Just mm -hmm. like the scene isn't one thing. The scene isn't just purely a rape sequence and the scene isn't purely mm. a love sequence. It's something in a strange, strange mm. way between those things. This music also, it exists in multiple places at the same time. Mm. Um, moving on to One More Kiss, Dear, which of course I've already teed up mm. like seven times in this episode. This famously <laughs> was sung by Don Percival, who wasn't like a musician primarily. He was an artist manager um, who's like, you know, a friend of his in the studio and sang it. Uh, I, I love it. This is something I had no clue Vangelis composed until like a few years ago. And I was looking at, I was like, I wonder what this actually is from. I had assumed it was from some like 1930s vaudeville movie or something mm. or some stage play, but it actually was composed for this movie by Vangelis and mm. it appears in the movie, you know, the way it appears in the soundtrack more or less. And it, uh, it feels like this, I, I mentioned, I mentioned this on the 2049 episode and actually Robin, I don't know if you've been able to listen to it yet, but I'll, I'll I want to bring up the same point that I've made then, which is that in 2049, you have Frank Sinatra, you have Elvis, mm, mm. you have very clear, uh, uh, anachronistic musical elements going on mm. that are not of the future. And that actually, I think problematically in 2049 are of our actual past, not even mm, an, an imagined mm. parallel past, but the past vis-a-vis -vis the world we're actually living in right now in this timeline, which elsewhere in Blade Runner, you know, that wall is never breached, broached mm. because it's always, a, a, you know, this parallel future. But in 2049, we get these songs from our actual past, not our imagined past, which is mm. kind of a problem, I think. In this one, we're hearing something from an imagined past, mm. like a parallel past. And that does something temporally, which is crazy interesting because it makes us nostalgic mm. for something that doesn't exist. Mm. It makes us miss a simplicity that actually wasn't there in the first place that we recognize echoes of. I mean, when I hear it, you know, I hear a bicycle built for two almost. Mm. You know, I hear the jazz singer. I hear things from the first half of the 20th century that are nostalgic and whimsical and nice. But that song didn't exist until he wrote mm. it for this movie. And so because of that, it's triggering this weird thing in me where I'm feeling like, you know, we've had the soundtrack that up until this point has been so immersive and like so expressive and lyrical and strange and mm. displacing. And then we have this thing that's so not that we kind of assume that it's uh, it's not 
from this film, but it actually is from this film. And I love that. Mm -hmm. It makes us nostalgic for something that doesn't exist. It's a very cool effect. Mm. Yeah, I, I love One More Kiss, dear. Less for the music, which actually I, I do enjoy the music. I think it's a really beautifully put together piece of music. It's a really beautifully put together song. I love it for all of those reasons. I love the fact that what Van Gogh is doing is he's creating an in-world um, history, an in-world back catalogue of music that, you, and I love the fact that it's it's like so much of what's going on in Blade Runner. It's like, is it specially composed for the film? Is it environmental music? What is it doing there? You know, it's it's it, the whole nature of the of the piece of music is is up for grabs, and you know, and it's it's a matter of discussion. The one thing that always struck me when I read um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is that there is there are lots of references to music in the book. Um, so obviously, there's the reference to Mozart's Magic Flute, but there's also reference to Joseph Strauss's. Um, uh, I don't know what it is. Um, his his piece of music, "My Life Is Love and Pleasure," um, which I when I read that, I thought, "Oh my goodness, that's a lyric from um, that's a lyric from One More Kiss, dear." Of course, it's not quite a lyric from One More Kiss, dear, but it is almost a lyric because the lyric I think is, "Our love is such passion and such pleasure." Yeah. So, right. I, what I'm wondering is, you know, Vangelis didn't write the words; he didn't write the lyrics to this. But I'm wondering, had Vangelis read the book, was did he read? You know, had he realized that there are these kind of these references put in by Philip K. Dick to the, the music of the world that he's describing. Um, and is Vangelis imagining, you know, is he trying to imagine, I, I, my feeling is yes, he must be, that he's trying to imagine what would the music of this world, what would the music of these characters be like? And I think the soundtrack is just so much richer for that. And I don't think Vangelis does that anywhere else. He certainly doesn't, as far as I know, he doesn't do it in 1492, or at least not in the same way. He doesn't do it in Antarctica. He doesn't do it in Chariots of Fire. Um, forgive me, that's, um, yeah, those are those are the ones I know quite well um, in terms of Vangelis' other catalogue. So yeah, so I just, I'm just intrigued by it because it's, you know, it's Vangelis fleshing out the world. And there are a number of occasions where he does that. So there's the music um, in um, in Taffy Lewis's bar, for example, right. um, where, where Vangelis is kind of trying to imagine what the, what pop music would sound like in, 20, in 2019 and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, so I think, yeah, what Vangelis is doing in his soundtrack is he's just giving us so much. He's giving us traditional soundtrack elements. He's giving us kind of in-world elements, um, you know, and I just love it for that reason. And I love the fact that One More Kiss, dear, is, you know, made it to the 1994 release um, because it just reminds us of the riches that Vangelis is giving us. Much like Patrick, I thought the track was from the 40s or 20s. I didn't find out that until you told me, Patrick, a few years ago. I was like, really? And much like the Elvis in 2049 or the Sinatra, it was familiar. I was like, okay, they just used music from the 40s. The original film, 2019, it's a collaboration of many different eras uh, in human history. So the 40s seems kind of right. Rachel looks like, you know, a, a femme fatale from a 1949 film or mm, a 1945 mm. film. So it all kind of works. Um, it's got that film noir thing. So it really, really works for me. Much like Elvis in Vegas works, you know, or a jazzy Sinatra in Vegas works. To me, those work the same way this did. I I don't like, I love, I really enjoy the song. I don't like how they included it into the score. I think it should have been processed a little bit more, a little bit more um, dusty sounding or whatever, a little bit more and a little bit slighter. 
So we're, mm-hmm. we're taken out of it into the next scene, but they let the entire song play much like they do in the score for 2049 with all those songs mm. playing, but we only hear snippets of them. And I wanted it. I just wanted to hear a snippet of it. I didn't need to, I don't need to hear the whole song, not because I don't find the song really well made and well sung mm. and authentic to the forties or whatever era they're trying to conjure. I just, for me, it's like, it takes me out. If I listen to the whole thing, it pulls me out of the film because we don't even hear that whole. And then you hear the interlude, one more kiss dear. Mm. And he's sort of talking. You never hear that in the film because we're gone in 40 seconds from that scene. Mm. Um, so I feel like they, 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 Vangelis or whoever made the decision in terms of engineering and editing, they, they shouldn't have included the entire song, but they did. And I think it's great as a mm. listening experience. I get tired after about 40 40 seconds it's just like okay <laughs> this is because the song isn't there to tell us much he's going to buy some beer i think or some liquor and there's mm-hmm. a woman at the and she has that song playing and it's brief so there's and it's just a little bit of a like like it's a speakeasy so it's got that feeling mm. and it's a blip whereas the song on the score on the release it's more of this immersion and we weren't immersed into that song it's not really informing us of mm. anything I mean, I guess it is, but in the context of the film, it isn't. So it's my least, as much as I enjoy, it's the least interesting part of the of the score for me. And it is indeed the one that people skip. It's the one people complain about, typically, especially about this particular release of the soundtrack, because it's the one that breaks the immersion, you know? Um, I mean, part of why you get bored of it, probably, Jamie, is because it has a traditional verse-chorus verse structure, mm-hmm. like every Tin Pan Alley song ever written. So once you hear the first verse of it, you're like, okay here we go again just slightly different words right um which again if if you're if you're not super engaged with it is going to make it very skippable and i think it's it's a testament to the strength of the soundtrack that people complain about that because it means that like nobody is touching the next track button ever (laughs) right because you don't i mean when i put this on i am out of commission for 57 minutes because i'm going to listen to the full soundtrack right (laughs) which again is why i'm not going to drive anywhere because i mean i was late to recording tonight because i was listening to the soundtrack and i was like fuck i gotta stop listening to the soundtrack to talk to these guys who i love but i i love the soundtrack almost as much as i love you guys (laughs) not quite um but yeah it's it's an interesting it's an interesting track i love it i find it's it's an interesting study in two things and then we'll move on uh one of which is what robin was saying about the way that vangelis was so much more than quote unquote more than a film composer for this thing he composed a universe for it right Mm -hmm. i mean there's so much unreleased things that we get in other editions of this of this uh, soundtrack there's so many things that are in the movie that never even make it into a soundtrack anywhere and then there's all these wonderful in-world tracks like taffy's bar like this where we just get a sense of a greater world building mythology Mm. around this. And I don't Mm. know any other scores that do that. Every other score I can think of uses some form of licensed music for that stuff because Mm. you can, right? Because if, if it's a movie taking place in the future, then like it makes sense. For example, alien covenant is a great example. right. There's John Denver in that Mm. movie. Um, And that, you know, makes sense because it's in the context of our world. It's our timeline and it's our actual past. And that's why it's in our actual future. But this mm. one takes place very specifically, and we see this again and again in Future Noir. We see it in conversations we've had with Hampton Fancher and with others. This movie takes mm. place not in our universe. It takes place in a in a prism reflected of our universe. Mm. And that's why there's this just amazing sleight of hand that happens where he makes us nostalgic for something that's not even real to us. Mm. And what I think is an issue with 2049 that I didn't 
realize until last episode and why those tracks feel so anachronistic to me is because they actually are because they are real breaks in reality because mm. the reality of this universe is self-contained. It's not our reality. This is an example of how Vangelis did a better job of that than the 2049 audio team because he used an, an imagined past for us to mm. give us a sense of imagined nostalgia. Um, I think part of why I like it also is that it gives us a little break before things get really um, super immersive and emotionally intense mm. again. Of course, starting with the next track, which is Blade Runner Blues, which is maybe maybe the most iconic thing of the whole soundtrack. It's, you know, a part of popular culture. It is very prominently featured in the movie. The first time we hear it is when Deckard meets Zora. Mm. We hear it again later on in the film uh, when he's at his apartment at his piano with the whiskey glass. It's just these moments in the movie that are just like so iconic and so memorable and uh, survived subsequent editions of the film and have just become part of the lexicon of popular culture and science fiction. And, uh, you know, in addition to the visual moments being memorable, the way that the music is constructed is just, it's just iconic. It's iconic. You know, I, I had a post on our Facebook page, uh, it was a, a shot of Deckard in front of some neon lights. And I was talking about how, you know, Cronenweth's cinematography was just iconic. Like everything that he mm. shot in that movie is just like nobody else did that ever again. This is an example musically of that, where it is just an iconic fingerprint mm -hmm. of Vangelis in this film. What you have here is literally a blues scale being played. Mm. You have that flat seventh. You have a lot of the sound of like the Delta Blues in our universe, but it's transmogrified by mm. these synthesizers, by again, that CS80 being pulled back towards the sound of the saxophone that we've mm. been getting accustomed to and feeling this push and pull between the synthetic and the non-synthetic, feeling the body of the blues music with the mind of this synth futurism. Um, I just love how uh, it how he uses that. And again, how we get to hear the CS-80 up against this beautiful texture that we typically, almost every instance of the CS-80 in the soundtrack, it's you have the CS-80 as the lead. Mm -hmm. you know, it's the lead mm -hmm. element projected very much above an accompaniment, which is just this chorus of like 300 synthesizers that he's playing. Mm -hmm. And Blade Runner Blues is a great example that you have this just vast pad of synths rising and falling underneath just this beautiful saxophone solo mm. on the CS80 lead line. And it's just, it's just, it, again, it's just iconic. I love it. I would agree. I, this track is devastating to hear. It's beautiful. It's haunting. It's devastating. But there's also, they're using it in three different ways. You, you see Pris while this music is playing, you see Deckard on his balcony, and then you see Zora being killed. Um, mm. It's a long track. I think it's the longest track on the album, or on the score, um, but it's it's life in the city. To me, I hear this, and it's this is life in the, in the big city. And it's very film noir. It's very life in the city. I just hear, I mean, I, I hear his voiceover from the, the theatrical edition talking over the score. It's very classic. Hollywood film noir, and I love it for that. Um, but it's also primordial man in the sense of primordial man in the big city. This mm. is, it's you live and you die here. Um, the city is unforgiving. And it's like our, it's the lullaby to all of us, to all of us trapped on our balconies mm. with feeling lost in the city. It's the lullaby to the, Pris, 
who is the homeless woman walking down the street, but she doesn't know where she's going. I mean, Pris knew where she was going, but still, there. when you first meet her, you don't know who she is, and she walks, she's walking down the street, and she puts the garbage on her, and she goes to sleep, and it's so mm. devastating. It's, it's, she doesn't have a home, and the mm. music is just echoing that, like, this, this is this big city, but this is no one's home. Mm. And the music, to me, it's a lullaby, but it's a terrible lullaby. So I love it, and it's terrifying at the same time. Mm. Yeah, no, it's incredibly beautiful. It's such a, it's such a great, um, it's such a great piece of music. Um, I was going to use the word song, but my wife would tell me off because um, <laughs> <laughs> obviously it's not a song. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's an incredible piece of music. Um, and building what Patrick was saying about the kind of commonalities between it and the love theme, I guess, yeah, in both cases, the CS80 is 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 a back is is forming a background and in this case it's also forming a foreground um it reminds me the kind of main instrument the kind of lead instrument reminds me of some of the things that van Gelis was doing on an album he did in the 70s called spiral um particularly tracks like ballad and dervish d where he's doing he's i think he's i think he is the i think it is the cs80 he's using to create something which sounds a bit like a harmonica um and yeah, and and as you say, he's he's taking the blues and he's you know and he's he's pushing it into this kind of um, neo noir future. So yeah, so it's an incredible piece of music. I guess when I first heard it, um, obviously I was familiar with the bits that were used in the film, but I was not ever prepared for like nine minutes of this. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that is so extraordinary about it is it just keeps going. You know, mm -hmm. Vangelis just keeps improvising and he's improvising um, primarily on the synth, but he's also improvising on an electric piano. And I do love that bit at the end where the, the bass synthesizer and the electric piano do this little thing in tandem. Um, they both, yeah, they, there's, this little, um, there's this little riff and it comes in first with the bass and then with the electric piano. And it's just really, you know, this kind of call and response thing going on. So yeah, so, so weirdly, in the sense that it is this kind of morbid lullaby, Vangelis is also having fun with it. I think um, a little bit. You know, he's he's enjoying the the process of, of, of improvisation, um, which you know is appropriate to to a piece of music which is reflecting the, the blues. So yeah, so it's fantastic. And I was, um, as I say, of all of the disappointments um, that I experienced in 1994 when I bought <laughs> this thing for ten pounds, which was a huge amount of money for a student in those days. Um, yeah, I mean, this was not a disappointment at all. But, you know, this is what I wanted. This is what I paid my money for. And I was so pleased that I, you know, got to hear this in this like this pristine version of it. Loved it. The length version. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the same thing. Th this version goes on for maybe ten hours. It's crazy. When I'm listening <laughs> to this thing, sometimes I'm like, "How fucking long have I been listening to this track for?" Because I just lose myself in it. I just become to. And then, and then there's all all these beautiful moments of stasis where like there's just nothing except this sort of chord being held out. And then you have, I'm like, oh my God, it's bad. the song's still going. That's right. We're not done mm. yet. Those moments are so beautiful because they are, like Jamie said, the language of the city. And when I listen to this thing, I, I mean, maybe this is because, well, there's probably many reasons for it, but I, I think a lot about Dan and Jamie and I walking around Los Angeles, mm. you know, going through like Tent City and going through, you know, Skid Row, then going to get fried chicken on the strip, you know, at like 1130 at night. And this, the improbable beauty the of that moment. Yeah. Walking in the second street tunnel. 
and feeling, uh, and, you know, being steps from the Bradbury building, seeing all of these things that are just like, just it, it, like, I couldn't even imagine they were real and being out late at night with mm-hmm. friends in a vast city that is a little scary and mm. feeling like, uh, this sense of anything could happen, you know, anything could happen for better or mm. for worse. And that's what I get in these scenes in Blade Runner. It's, it's all of these moments of destiny intersecting with each other. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned Pris cause, cause her moment in this is also really powerful. I think. It's like, you know, Pris is somebody who, you know, came from another planet back mm. here in search of freedom. And that is a huge journey. And we don't see that journey at all. We're just told about it. But we do see her as a destitute person on the street covering herself in garbage to try to get some sleep or to try to mm. hide, you know. And I think that that is this music is her journey. This music is Zora's journey. This music is running in fear into the unknown this Mm. music is deckard confronting that this music you know it's called blade runner blues i'm assuming because it's it's you know uses the blues scale and it kind of feels like a blues track and because it's about you know deckard being depressed because of course in in the movie you know a lot of this hovers around him sitting at the piano with the whiskey glass but it feels like more than that to me it feels like uh it feels like the language of destiny or something it is just a a beautiful moment of stasis on this soundtrack Robin, I feel like you're telling me that the CS80 is not the lead on this. Is that true? Um, I don't know. I was looking this up. I was looking this up. I was trying to work out what was the synth he was using on um, Spiral. Yeah. Um, but the, the, all the information I've got on Spiral is Spiral is the first album where he uses the CS80. So okay. I'm going to say it probably is. And I know that you can get um, a Blade Runner Blues lead um, patch for the um, for the virtual CS80 um, okay. from Artura. Okay. So I think I'm. Because I sense that is, you were hedging the language on that a little bit. Yeah. No, I, I was. I wasn't convinced. I wasn't convinced that it really was the CS80. But I've talked myself into thinking that it probably is. If anybody knows better than us, please please let us know. I have always assumed it was, and I think I've always used this track as a great example of how mm. expressive the CS80 is because it doesn't mm. sound like it does anywhere else. Mm. But he's playing it the way he plays the CS80. He's he's using mm. it, you know, with obviously different settings on it. I just think mm. it's, yeah, this this soundtrack again. This is the one where, especially after one more kiss, dear, I am just like, it. I've never had like peyote before or dropped acid. Uh, you know, maybe I will someday, who knows, but uh, <laughs> to me, like this has always been the closest to that I've ever, I've ever felt even, you know, like, I just feel like time doesn't exist anymore. The way it doesn't mm. exist in the music of Olivia Messian, you know, it feels like, mm. like time has just gone somewhere else and I don't have to worry about it, mm. you know? And that's a really hard place to get to as an adult, <laughs> you know? And mm. I, I love that the soundtrack and that track in particular brings me there. Um, mm. As we pull here towards the end, which I know we need to because this has Ooh, been just a yes. quickie. Yes, I'm yes. going to say it is the CS80, and the reason being, I think the thing that you get in the Blade Runner Blues lead instrument is I think you get examples of Vangelis using aftertouch, um, and mm. so aftertouch is when you've, you're holding down the notes on the keyboard and then you press on a note you've already held down, and it alters the timbre of the um, timbre, timbre. I don't know how to say it. Tom. It alters that's the one it alters that bit of the of the of the of the sound so i don't think on the other sense he's got in his um in his laboratory in the nemo studios at this point i don't think any of the other ones have got aftertouch um i think you can hear aftertouch in this in, in this sound so i'm gonna say yeah i think it is the cs80 but I'm, mm. I'm very willing to be told otherwise by somebody who really knows it's beautiful whatever it is mm. it's just an, it's just an mm. amazing sound and again it's it's somebody who is just freestyling with a synthesizer mm. for 10 minutes 
mm. and and just and, and making time evaporate in an mm. incredible way. Uh, moving on to memories of green, I don't have a lot to say about this one. I I, I think that it's it's it, I, I'm always I I honestly don't notice it's playing a lot of the time because I'm I'm still completely transfixed by the previous one. So this is usually starting then I'm like, oh, it's a new song. Hang on, I gotta like wake up for a second. Um, of course, you know he had actual pianos in his, in Nemo Studios as well, including a Steinway, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's largely what the texture consists of here. It's it's pianos that are detuned and processed, mm-hmm. but it's acoustic pianos dovetailing, of course, with synths um, throughout, which are rising and falling in these beautiful waves. Mm-hmm. And it's a track that um, I find again strangely nostalgic. I think partly because I think we've been kind of programmed Pavlovianly to by the previous by the way that the previous two tracks went together right because we had one more kiss here which is just this sort of you know am radio quality piano playing Mm. and then we have this like crazy futuristic blues thing and then likewise we come back to the pianos that are detuned and it feels almost like again we're pulling back Mm. into some sort of a nostalgic environment but it's a it's a it's a beautiful track i just don't have like a strong relationship with it Mm. I guess all I'd want to say about Memories of the Green of Memories of Green is first of all that it's one of these things where again when I first saw the film I had no idea which what bits of the sound landscape I was listening to were Vangelis making music and which bits were kind of like the background noises as it were you know the the, the kind of noises of the city and when I finally heard um, Memories of Green on See You Later um, yeah, I, there was so much more in, in, in the track than I, I thought was the music. So yeah, so it's one of these things which is blurring the boundaries. Um, and the other thing I'd say about Memories of Green is I'd, I think with the album See You Later, you can see Vangelis kind of heading in the direction of Blade Runner before the movie kind of, you know, uh, you know before he, he gets the commission to write the movie. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of stuff in See You Later which, which kind of feels like it could have been it could have been dropped into Blade Runner and it would make sense in Blade Runner. Um, yeah, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. Not least because one of the quote unquote instruments that's being used in there is a little handheld computer games console. And the story is that his um, studio assistant had to keep playing the game without, you know, without um, getting killed. You know, it's a Space Invaders game. He had to keep playing it for the whole duration of the track. Um, you know, he, it, it, yeah, otherwise um, they, they would have to rewound and retook the whole thing again. But I think he managed it on the first take or something. But yeah, no, I like it a lot. I like the Memories of Green. I think it works beautifully in the film. Um, I'm always happy to listen to it. Is that what the is that the oh the no um, the um, that's that's the CS80 and there's a particular um, there's a particular setting on the CS80 where you can tune you can select an LFO setting which is random. Um, mm. So so I think on one of one of the oscillators he's got the LFO in a sine wave, I'm just going you know rising and falling, and the other one has selected it to random and you know and it gives you this incredible. Ooh, with the sort of yeah. thing going on simultaneously. Right. That's my attempt to mimic the CSAT. I'm available to do impressions of synthesizers <laughs> or money if anyone's out there and wants me to do some. Um, Very so niche audience, I think. Really. <laughs> I think it's going to be huge. Yeah. Seriously, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so no, but the, the computer game thing is, is, is more the sort of sounds oh just the get. blips yeah, yeah okay, it's cool. the blips the blips there you are technical term the, yeah. the blips yeah <laughs> so my explanation or my my experience of this track is going to be very very different than yours when I first heard this track before I had seen the film as a young child or a young teenager it was really depressive to me I mm. felt like the, the 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 blips I was hearing sounded like a, a monitor in a hospital that someone's on mm. 
Mm. I sound like a heart monitor. It sounds like it's up to me. I was like, oh, somebody's in the hospital. And but you, you didn't, didn't see the movie yet, so you didn't know. I hadn't know. seen the movie yet. So I'm like, boop. And it's so depressing to me. And uh, mm. I think this track combined with Blade Runner Blues was too much emotionally for me. Mm. Um, I can, again, listening to the Esper, it can contextualize larger because I feel like I'm listening to the whole movie. So I don't feel that way. But the way it was presented on this score, it was just devastating. It just, and I, this, I listened, I was listening to this music when I was in um, isolation as a child. Um, and it was just a part of a lot of dark music. And it's a dark score. It just is. Um, mm. Not that there's not hope in it, but it's a dark score. Um, and I gravitated to dark things. And I don't know why, but someone's like, listen to the score to Blade Runner. And I got the CD and I listened to it and it just felt like the end of the world. And then like, mm. just briefly, what I was going to say about um, Blade Runner Blues in terms of the length of it, I remember again, as a child feeling like I can't listen to this anymore. There's no hope mm. left. Where's mm. my hope? Again, that's my first experience as a child. As an adult, I don't feel that way anymore, but it's, I definitely get, pings of that of like mm. whew, let's move on from this this is but at the same time like with blade runner blues and even moving into um this track zora had been horribly shot in the back broken mm. through glass and then we're transitioning this is not a fun world deckard lives in this is not a fun world or not even just not fun it's not even a it's a horrible place that he lives emotionally, psychologically. That's mm. manifested everywhere. And these people are miserable. They're miserable. They're not happy people. The only marginally happy person might be J.F. Sebastian. His world is more creative. It's brighter. <laughs> he's filled, he's he's created all these wonderful things and toys that live around him. But those two tracks, oh, they break my heart. I, I mm. it is really difficult for me to listen to them. Mm. It's worth listening to it on See You Later because it's immediately followed by a track called Not A Bit All Of It, which is like, it's kind of like a One More Kiss Dear, but like a surrealist version of One More Kiss Dear. Mm. So you go from this really um, nostalgic kind of dark, almost bleak Memories of Green to this kind of thing, this thing which sounds like it's an advert for soap powder from the 1950s. <laughs> Um, it's just a, it's just this crazy thing that Vangelis is kind of like taking in one direction and then he's kind of like waking you up with a sl you know from your depressive stupor with this slap in the face which is this mm -hmm. final track on 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 side a of the um, of, of the vinyl yeah so listen to it in its original context on um, on see okay. you later um, for a you know for a completely crazy experience yeah I don't know see you later at all so I'm, mm. I'm gonna listen to that quite a mm. bit based on this conversation um, we are nearing the end of the soundtrack, but there's a few more very important <laughs> ones to go, uh, including Tales of the Future, which is one that if you listen to Perfect Organism, which I'm assuming you do because this is an episode of it, so you probably heard other episodes, <laughs> you'll you'll notice uh, if it's an ep you know Jamie and I we kind of we both we split up editing duties on the shows that we do, but um, if I'm editing an episode of Shoulder of Ryan, it always has Tales of the Future in it mm. because I just I just feel like this is just so evocative. And it works great. It's 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 a lot less emotionally wrenching than a lot of the other mm. stuff on the soundtrack. It I always use the 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 idea of like as a spice market. You know, it's mm. just this like it it represents the wonderful diversity of this world. I mean, it's wonderful and it's oppressive in a way 
because it's a forced type diversity because, mm-hmm. you know, there's nowhere to live anymore. So everybody has to live together in the same place. But part of the beauty of the world of Blade Runner, right, is that there is this coexistence and there is a collision mm-hmm. culturally going on, especially with, you know, the West and the East, but also with the Middle East and the, in the, in the, in mm-hmm. the Midwest, as it were, because you get... Um, Moments like this where you have a lot of the modal and a lot of the world music that we've mm-hmm. been hearing. Um, I also often, when I talk about this track, I talk about it in terms of Kowali music, the Pakistani musical mm-hmm. tradition of ecstatic singing. I always mm-hmm. I always hear, you know, for example, Nusrat Fateli Khan, who's one of my favorite Kowali artists ever. When I hear this, I hear just this sense of like of like ecstasy, of, of like of, mm-hmm. of some sort of exaltation, um, you know, but couched in this context where there's just like so much hustle and bustle and, and noise and, mm. and, and energy and dynamism. Mm. And it is in a soundtrack where like every track feels like a real place you could visit. To me, mm. this one feels like the most literal real place you can mm. visit. You know, like if, if you've ever been to Morocco or, you know, I think of the first time I went to Turkey and I was in a, a bazaar, like a big open air market in Turkey. And I was just like so bombarded by what everything smelled like, by the amount of, of spices that were in the air, by the amount of people shouting in languages that I didn't understand, by the amount of people who were just like slamming into me because they were on the way to go do something. And because they were just in that environment, culturally used to doing that, to just being in physical contact with each other. You know, I just, I felt like overwhelmed from a sensory perspective mm. the first time I went there. And I, I feel like um, this brings me back a little bit. Tales of the Future to me, is uh is just a it's just an amazing sensory experience and every time i hear it I, i'm transported oh absolutely i mean i think it's the epitome of blade runner i mean if you were if you were if you were boiling blade runner down to a four minute 46 second track this would be it and tales of the future would be it kind of yeah um and i remember when i first got the new american orchestra version of the soundtrack and there were lots of things i recognized there but obviously the thing they they didn't even touch because they, they knew there was no way they could reproduce it was tales of the future um, and yeah, it's just it's just absolutely beautiful from beginning to end. Everything about it is wonderful. Um, Demis Roussos's vocals are just, it's like, as you say, it's kind of got the, the, the kind of character of an ecstatic utterance. Um, and yes, and it is, it's a kind of mixture of East and West, and it's a mixture of old and new and past and future, um, and, you know, and prophecy. Um, it's all there, and yeah, and I can't get enough of it. So yeah, so as I say, of all of my disappointments, when I, when I, I, I looked at the title and I knew what it was immediately. I thought that is exactly what you call that piece of music. Um, and yeah, so there it is. Track number nine starts playing. It's exactly what I'd anticipated. And yeah, and it was just like, oh my goodness, finally I have this music. And yeah, absolute one of my favorite tracks of all times. It's incredible. I would agree with everything. I, I love world music, like mm. groups like Dead Can Dance. Um, and this plays right into the feeling of, and it's also very predictive of the future we're living in now where there's this convergence of cultures where things are changing voices are are rising we're mm. we're seeing more different kinds of people because of just a, a need for change and i love the the clash of all of that it's not really a, it's not a clash at all it's a perfect marriage of sights and sounds and you have the geisha singing in the background but she doesn't really sound like a geisha sometimes she sounds like uh, somebody in Iran, uh, the call to prayer, it reminds me of that as well. And then you have those instruments. And then even there's things in this piece that we don't hear in this 94 version, which sounds like a didgeridoo or monks 
chanting or something that's a part of this as well but mm -hmm. it's not included here i love it i i to mm. your point robin it's it is quintessential blade runner it is mm. a convergence of worlds what's interesting about this this piece lives in a way that patrick and i experienced and dan when we went to um the market what's, what's that market called again oh yeah a union uh, uh no, square union. that's Holly. union station union um, station that's union station i'm talking about the place where, we, where we ate no. yeah no yeah that's no not no no that's called uh, grand, grand central grand central station. I knew yeah. it was a train station, yeah. So Grand Central is essentially right across from the Bradbury building, right next to the big oh, theater. Wow. Yeah. And you go in there and it's a clash of cultures or a convergence of cultures. So you have Mexican, you have Peruvian, you have Japanese, you have everything there. And it's like Blade Runner come to life. This music is Grand Central Station. It's perfect. It was, it. He, they completely predicted the future. I love it. I can't get mm. enough of that track. And I'm glad that you uh, revisited the word clash and 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 said it's not a clash, but it's it's similar to one because I think that gets at something important about this sound world, which is that it's a melange, you mm -hmm. know, the spice melange. It's it's <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Dune is coming out soon for us. I'm yes, it is. Um, so I feel like for anybody who's ever visited a market or heard the call to prayer like that out in the open. Anybody who's ever been in, you know, if you go to New York and you leave Midtown Manhattan, you go up to, you know, to Washington Heights, or you go down to some of the neighborhoods in Staten Island, for example, any place where there's a lot of cultures that converge and there's a meeting point and they coexist, it is not a quiet place. It's a place where people very proudly are themselves, but in concert with other people who are very proudly being themselves too. Those communities are like, for one thing, always the best place to eat because there's the food is always like phenomenal. But also, it's just it's those are the places that you don't forget. The places isn't that, that food so good there too? It. Yeah. Oh my god, it's fucking amazing. About? Yes. Yo, remember those fucking tacos? Yes, I do. Oh, we got like eight of them. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> remember we brought them in the basement? Oh, those are so good. Yeah. Um, yeah but uh, you got to come yeah, and but, visit. And and you're and you're right though. But like like Jamie, like that. The, part of why the food there was so great is because it was like everything from around yes. the world being made. Yeah. So and you know the menus mm. were in like the languages of the cuisines. So like you know and it's it, all I, neon. I, I remember, Everything's neon. Yeah, it was awesome. But I remember walking around with Dan and like practicing my Spanish because like that's how you had to order things at like the taqueria. Like it was a place where culture was just everywhere, and it was and it was it was better for it. And I feel like in Blade Runner, it's easy to feel you know, uh, disenchanted with this notion of, you know, people are together on the street and it's rainy and it's smoggy and it's dark, but mm. it was also special, you know, and that's something in 2049 that evaporates because in 2049, it's the language of isolation, right? It's, it's all of these people, they're, they're still there, but they're not making noise anymore. They're still there, but they're quiet. In 2019, everybody is there and they are very, very loud because mm. they're not used mm. to each other yet, right? They're not taking for granted this, you know, and uh, like the world isn't collapsing on itself to the degree it is in 2049. So there's a sense of like, we can make a new home here. We can make mm -hmm. this work. Mm -hmm. We can have this immigrant experience in this place, even though it's so hostile in a lot of ways, because we're teeming with immigrants. We're from all mm -hmm. over the world and we're here to show people who we are. There's this beautiful sense in that and that track. And I think part of why it feels so special to me is it is it just feels like a real place you could walk into that would be so special. Bring us to the end, almost. Uh, we have Damask Rose or Damask. Is it Damask? I'd say Damask. 
Damask, yeah. In my head, I always say Damask, but I, I, that doesn't make any sense. Damask, Damask Rose. <laughs> Dumbass dumb Rose. Rose. <laughs> this is Dumbass Rose. Um, and another one, I don't have a ton to say. It's just a great track. It's very much world music. It has scales rising and falling over a huge drone sound, which is great. Um, and it feels uh, magisterial to me. Like a, my, my note for this track was it's the majesty of heaven whatever you define heaven as to me, it just feels like the gates are open up and I'm looking at something vast and incomprehensible. And I'm just by this point on the soundtrack, just like so fucking happy that it exists and that I'm just, you know, and, and it, I, you know, it's worth pointing out. There are obviously better editions of the soundtrack than this. There are much more, you know, accurate to the film editions of it. The Esper edition in particular is one that I have a special relationship with that I, I adore, but I still revisit this one all the time because it's the one that I fell in love with when I was a kid. And it's the one that I've kind of always had with me everywhere I've gone. And so like, for me, even though listening to the soundtrack, isn't really the experience of actually listening to Blade Runner in any real representative form. It's the language of the world of Blade Runner for me in a way that the other soundtracks kind of can't be because I'm nostalgic for it. For me, this is a great example of that. Like this is something where, you know, I'm, by this point, just just basking in this thing. And I'm just so glad mm -hmm. that I'm taking another journey. And I know that I'm getting to that final 10 minutes and I know what's coming. And I know that, you know, we're going to have this kick-ass outro that's going to get me so pumped. And then we're going to have like the most beautiful hymn I've ever heard. And we have that waiting for us. And so this is a chance for me to mm. kind of just bask in the glory that Van, that Van Gaal has created. Mm. This one reminds me of Rachel's um, song in the sense that it seems to me that there are elements of the Blade Runner soundtrack that um, Vangelis didn't feel were finished enough, um, which he's using as the background and then he's improvising over the top. And um, the other thing that I think is interesting about it is that the a damask rose is a hybrid rose. It's a rose which is bred together from three different roses to create a new species. And I think it's kind of talking about the hybridity of 2019, exactly all the things that, that um, Patrick um, and Jamie, you were talking about in terms of the last track. Um, and it's also, it's also like one of the most um, fragrant of roses. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's kind of, a, it's, it's, you know, it's about, it's about the smell of the city. It's about the perfume. It's kind of like, it's got this kind of herbal incense-y feel, I believe, to the smell. So yeah, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of meaning packed into the title of this track. Um, and one again, which I get, as I say, um, initially I was kind of a bit vexed by it because it wasn't, strictly speaking in the movie but i've kind of but it, nonetheless i kind of grew to love it very very quickly rachel is essentially the damask rose she is a new species um she is mm. she is mm. fragrant she is everything mm. to me mm. it, it, it it's interesting i'm actually a little bit confused because the next track is the entitles right yeah so is the tears and rain there it's, it's the it's, it's after the coder, it. isn't it? It's the, oh, yeah, the that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. I forgot. The okay. epilogue, so, yeah. That's right. Um, but yeah, I, I love this track as well. Uh it's very transitional to me. You can mm. tell that it's there's things happening and it's just it's it's a great transition from Tales of the Future, where it still has that world sound, um, but it's taking us out of the the height of the world sound to a different place. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Agreed. And it's, and it's cool now that we have 2049 seeing just what a damask, damask, I can't say this word, damask, 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 dumbass, yeah. just seeing just, just what a damask, da, I've been saying it wrong for 20 damask years, so rose. I apologize. Damask rose, Rachel actually is because she was the hybrid that broke mm. everything wide open, mm. you know, yeah. she yeah. was her own unique, her own rare bird, you know. 
uh, okay, going to the end titles, which you're going to hear in probably about five or six minutes because they're also the end titles of the podcast. Um, it, it, you know, that's always been one of my favorite tracks. It's, Me it's, too. it's definitely the sound of a door closing and, you know, a future opening that's mysterious and interesting. Tonally speaking, it's very different from basically all of the rest of the music mm. because it's so propulsive, right? Most of the music in the soundtrack is music that not only doesn't go anywhere, it specifically stays somewhere. It's music that is of a place. And that's why it feels so architectural to us. And so geographic, mm. this is a song that is like, into the future it is sending us on a rocket ship and it's a song that a lesser composer would have made sound like shit i mean like jamie and i talk about this frequently how bad the ending songs in movies often are you know the the credit sequences are usually just either like a greatest hits compilation of tracks or like a pop cover of something or just something inconsequential that's just got spooky booming noises in the background. This is like, Evangelis gave us this like grand finale to this thing. Mm. It's the end of the fireworks. Beautiful. It's so sonically, melodically beautiful. Yeah. It's densely layered and it's textured and it's more complicated than it seems the first time you hear it. Mm. But it also is the first thing in the soundtrack to me that tells you what it is in an overt way when I hear it, which is not Mm. a bad thing. So much of the soundtrack is sort of like, where are we? Like, what, like what, where are we going? What are we listening to? And this is a moment of decisiveness, mm. which of course, narratively speaking is 100% intentional because it's Deckard actually waking up and doing something mm. about the situation and leaving. Right. And, 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 and it's the story saying there is a future for these characters. You're not going to see it. Here's the door closing go. Or it's saying here they are in a nice drive in a Volkswagen commercial, but that's a separate you know issue. <laughs> Um, I think that it's it's just a it's a just a great piece of music and I and I just I just love it. Yeah, it it kind of makes more sense uh, musically without the happy ending. I I feel it's it's so nice in the director's cut and the final cut when you just get the door shutting and then suddenly you're into the arpeggiator and you're kind of you you've got this very very dynamic um, c- closing piece of music. Um, there's an awful lot I like about it. I like the simplicity of the melody. Um, but the complexity of the arrangement. And I think those two things together give you a wonderful piece of music. Um, I think it's one of the only places in the soundtrack that Vangelis uses the ring modulator, which is a great feature on the CS80. And he uses it. He does the same thing in the 1492 ending in that you have this repeating melody and then mm-hmm. he kind of slaps in the ring modulator and kind of makes it go crazy for a bit. Um, so I like that about it. So yeah, um, love it to bits. Um, and, you know, and I think it's one of those things that it's one of those pieces of music, which it it's great on the CD, but it's even better in the cinema when it's the kind of finale to the experience of the movie. Um, I think it, you know, I think it's a wonderful, it encapsulates the movie again in a different way to Tales of the Future, but it does, it gives you the kind of emotional payoff. It's the emotional full stop or perhaps exclamation mark at the end of the movie. So I kind of prefer it more as a movie experience than I do as a kind of soundtrack experience. I, yeah, I love this track as well. And it's, it is, it's celestial. It's Rachel and that, of course, in the context of the final cut or the director's cut, the door shuts. And it's Rachel and Deckard in the stars. I, I think of celestial bodies when I hear this. It's, they're in the stratosphere mm. now. Mm. They're in the stratosphere of our minds and our hearts, which makes 2049 all the more devastating that that actually isn't what happened. Um, but at that point in the original film, mm. it's, it's, it's bliss, it's euphoria, 
Um, and I, oh, I just love it so much. And oddly enough, our friend Charles de Lozarica isn't that much of a fan of this, or at least his words were like, yeah, you know, you know, he seemed to <laughs> talk about the tone of it. And I get what mm. he's saying. Tonally, it's different than anything else in the film. It also sounds quintessential Vangelis, in my opinion. Mm. Like, you mm. want to hear a, what Vangelis sounds like in its element? Listen mm. to the end titles of Blade Runner. I, mm. It is just the most perfectly beautiful track. I love it as much as I love him or Himna from opera sauvage i just they have a similar texture where it sounds like stars are shattering um mm -hmm. oh it's just absolutely sublime i could listen mm. to it over and over on your point about it being celestial, this is the piece of the soundtrack which sounds to me the most sci-fi. Everything else yes. sounds like it's sci-fi meets film noir, whereas this sounds just like straight down the line sci-fi. Um, nothing wrong with that. Love that. Yeah, it's a shift. And I think it's not, you know, uh, by accident <clears throat> that it reminds you of Hymna from Opera Sauvage, because that is a through-composed piece of music, not through-composed in the use a theory sense in the sense of uh, it's got a, you know, it's a got a very clear melody and accompaniment repetitive structure that has a beginning and an end. The, that particular piece from opera Sauvage, which hopefully is playing as I'm saying this, so people know what I'm talking about. It has a, you know, almost like a, a, a processional quality. It's mm -hmm. moving into the future in a very clear and deliberate way that he did not improvise. That That is definitely a track that he like took some time with, and you know, wrote out some parts for himself. At least did kind of a lead sheet to, to follow from. And as he layered the parts, they were very rhythmic and very precise. It's really hard. And I say this to somebody who improvises on the piano every day. That's like what I start my day with a lot of the time after I drop the kids off at the bus stop. Um, it's very hard to improvise rhythmically in a really rigid way because it's it's another vector to be thinking about, right? It's something that, and also once you get really rhythmic in an improv. If you're if you have a pulse attached to it, you kind of have to obey that pulse, which means you can't stop and think about stuff. You can't allow something to sit for a minute and just kind of get out of it, right? If you're going to improvise with a rhythm, it's difficult. So you know, Hymna as well as the end titles of Blade Runner are both things that Vangelis clearly composed ahead of time quite a bit. He knew mm. you know what he was going for, and he layered the elements like the arpeggiator that that Robin was talking about, like the timpani that you hear very clear, the bum 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 mm. bum 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 bum, which is very clear kind of orchestral element i was talking about dominant chords before that's the tonic chord the bum and the bum is the dominant it's <laughs> saying like tonic dominant tonic dominant you know which is like very classic orchestral mm. music um it's that super low note on the piano and octaves that he goes the bum sounds like the you know hammer of fate playing it's a very composed piece but it fits mm. because the rest of the movie wasn't like that you know aside from some mm. moments the rest of the movie felt very much floating somewhere and mm. this is a moment where there's no floating anymore because the character, because he understood the narrative of this movie so intimately by that point that he knew that the characters were no longer floating and he was able to think musically, how would I represent that? And again, it's just as a composer, that's something that I don't know. I'm pretty sure I would not have thought about if I had been asked to score this movie, which would have been fucking cool. Let me be clear. I would have loved to have been asked <laughs> to have scored Blade Runner, uh, but that didn't happen, um, you know, which is fine because I wasn't born yet. And also I would have done a shit job compared to Vangelis. <laughs> my, my point being, 
I, I wouldn't, ha- I don't, I can't imagine my, I can imagine myself coming across some of the moments in this score as an artistic process. There are some things in here where I think I could have done something similar to that, or I could have like had an idea that was somewhat similar to what he was doing. This is something where I, I would not have arrived at that moment musically. I would not have said the music is decisive now for the first time. The music mm. is the character. The music is these is the journey of the characters because he was so tuned into it. And again, he was just riding this amazing cosmic wavelength mm. as a creative person. And he just made these decisions that are, again, like I said earlier, iconic. The same way Cronoweth was iconic, the same way Ridley Scott's direction was iconic, the same way the performances mm. are iconic. It, it, and it's, you know, one of those moments that testifies to the greatness of this film in the pantheon mm. of great films. It testifies to why this is a legendary thing to why people like Denny Villeneuve went for mm. the rest of their lives dreaming that they would have mm. the opportunity to make it again to the mm. reasons why people still write into, into our show saying, you know, keep this going because it's connecting me with something that I never want to lose again, you know, mm. because I saw this movie as a child and I dreamt about it for the rest of my life. And then I found a podcast on it and I was like, Oh my God, I can <laughs> dream going, you know, this is a movie that has become an iconic part of our lives. And this ending title is just uh, such an iconic example of that, which brings us to the final track on the 1994 album, which is tears and rain. And, uh, I mean, there's not a lot more to be said about it because it's, it's incredible. And because we've talked about this on mm-hmm. other episodes and just mentioned it on the 2049 episode, cause it also ends that soundtrack, um, before the credit music. But, uh, I will say it's amazing how long it took me to realize that I recognized that melody from the beginning of the movie, because we don't hear it from the, you know, you have the Hades landscape stuff and you have the intro music and then you have that melody just evaporates into the film and then it comes back at the end and it sounds very different because it's, you know, orchestrated very differently. It's being played very differently. It's in a different context. And it's just amazing because you're hearing the way that you started this journey refracted in this mm. beautiful way through the experience that you had of living with the movie for the previous, however long it was. And that I think is something that is just forever powerful. You know, Jamie, uh, we talked in the last episode about the way that life and death are wrapped up in this particular track. And I think a great way to look at it in the context of 2019 is, you know, the life that began this journey, this, you know, that, that we didn't realize was happening, but that these replicants were fleeing for this future that Deckard was, you know, this guy who was at the end of his rope and was going to find redemption. Like we, we didn't know that was happening, but it was, and we were brought into that world with this melody. And then we leave that world with the death of Batty, mm. which is the life of Deckard and Rachel. It, it is the beginning of their final stage of their journey. And musically, we're hearing that stuff from the beginning, but it feels so different. It feels like it's just mm. from another planet. It's so beautiful and meditative and gorgeous. And of course, it's interrupted after a few seconds by that huge bass drum hit, right? That just reverberates like mm. somebody slamming a door in a cathedral somewhere. Um, and then, you know, after that, of course, the chimes and the bells start to, to, to wind up again and the music swells in like a hymn. And it's just, you watch that in the sequence in the movie in which you see it. And it's like, I mean, what possible other music that has ever been written Mm. could possibly accompany the doves flying off that fucking rooftop. There is just no other track I can ever dream of that would be as emotionally impactful and perfectly suited to the movie as this thing that has life and death and hope and pain so 
beautifully tied together like a knot that we are still here 40 years almost later trying to unravel. It's just an, it's just, it's a moment of absolute beauty and an absolute. Mm. Oh yes. And as you say, it is a recapitulation of everything that we encounter in the first two and a half minutes of the film in the sense that you've got the melody, although it's now on, played on electric piano, you've got the bass drum with the incredible digital reverb on it. Um, which is like nothing at that point it's like nothing cinema ever, audiences have ever heard before because technically they just simply didn't have the capacity to put that amount of reverb on anything um you know but before 1981 1982 and the third thing you've got which is a recapitulation of, of one of the ideas in the beginning is you've got the pitch bend going into nothing um and so it's these three things which you encounter at the very beginning of the film which are there again at the end of the film and of course they mean something different at the end because they are they're all about the death of this incredible character, Roy Batty. So yeah, so it's an incredible piece of music and I adore it. Um, one slightly weird and prosaic thing to say about it is that, again, as I say, I spent nine years trying to search out this music. Um, so I listened to everything I could get my hands on by Vangelis, eventually even John and Vangelis. And there's, I don't, I can't remember which of the albums it is by John and Vangelis, but so Tears and Rain, there's kind of like two halves of, to it. There's the beginning half, which is the electric piano, and there's the end half, which is the long sustaining notes, which kind of disappear off into nothing. The second half of it is actually uh, used on a John and Vangelis album. There's really? this big, yeah, no, there's this massive in instrumental interlude um, between like the opening and the closing of the song. And it just, it segues into Tears and Rain and then it's back out into the song again. It's incredible. So yeah, so I don't know. Um, yeah, um, it, I, I will look it up and I will find it out. It will, sadly, it will mean listening to a lot of John and Vangelis, which is not my bag really. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's worth it for this bit. I'll send, I'll, I'll send you, um, I'll send it to you in the next couple of days. But yeah, yeah. so it, it's, it's weird the way that Vangelis kind of recycled these ideas and found other places for them. But it's just, and, and in terms of the texture, it is just lovely, whether we're talking about the electric piano or whether we're talking about the long sustaining, um, you know, stuff coming out of the CS80, it's all just beautiful. And um, yeah, what a great way to, you know, what a great climax to the film, as it were. Great, it is really beautiful and effervescent and um, hopeful. And that's it, the contrast of what we're seeing. Life is at an end in the rain and it's also giving Deckard life in that same moment. Um, it's It's very... Yeah, it's beautiful. There's not much that I can say that you guys haven't said. It's it's a piece that obviously moved to 2049, but I don't know if you've listened to our 2049 episode, Robin, but what we discovered in that is in 2049, they give the song an end that Vangelis mm. didn't give. So this is the first oh, iteration yes. of it where, like you said, it sort of fades off into the ether. Mm. Um, much like the end titles, when placed correctly within the context of the film, the end mm. titles never end. They just fade off into the ether mm. because this story sort of goes on in our mind and in our hearts, mm. uh, much like Roy Batty does. But then in 2049, they're like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to end this story. Um, so it's it is it's just one of the most beautiful pieces of music mm. I've ever heard in my life. And it's, it's, I mean, I can listen to it and cry to it. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Mm really good music will bring those emotions out of me and that's hard to mm. do so yeah it's amazing and i think it's such a testament to what they did with 2049 that that's the only cue that they reused from this mm. entire movie and where it is in the movie because it's happening while snow is falling it's happening at the end of a life cycle it's happening at the beginning of a new life 
the 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 way that they are able to use all of the things that we are feeling as Blade Runner fans in that moment in 2049 and synergize them that way and then give us this piece of the original film. It was, I mean, similar to when Rachel 2.0 came out and similar to a handful of other moments the first time I saw it. Uh, it, it was a moment where I was unable to breathe. I couldn't move. I was like, oh my fucking God, it's Roy's music at the end of this movie. And I am mm. dying. And again, mm. I, I just feel like watching the snowfall again. It's like, it's saying that there's something beautiful about that because it's, it's like the rain is, is transmogrified just like the melody is transmogrified. It's, it's like the, it's like the rain that we saw at the end of the first movie has become something more special and something more magical mm. and it's the first time we see snowfall in blade runner 2 which is important right but snowfall is just another type of rainfall just like life is just another type of death like we're in this cyclical thing and we are sharing our stories and our journeys with each other and they ebb and they flow and this was this one moment in this universe where those stories alighted again before they spread apart and he captured it musically and the team in, in 2049 captured it musically. And it's just, it's a melody that lives, lives forever. It's just a, a, a great piece of film history. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and on that note, I, I, I want to thank you both for sharing with me and with our listeners, your expertises on this, this incredible piece of film history. Um, you know, we hope people have enjoyed this. This has been just a treasure talking with you both about it. It's it's a, it's midnight here. I know it's like fucking four in the morning for Robin right now. Uh, I'm going to listen to the rest of the soundtrack again as soon as we hang <laughs> up. And I will be up until one in the morning listening to this. And I will enjoy every single moment of it because it is truly a transcendent accomplishment. Mm. And, uh, and it's been a pleasure talking about it with you guys. Mm. Thank you, Robin, for coming on. Thank you for joining the show in whatever capacity works for you. Oh, my pleasure. It's always, it's a dream come true to talk about this soundtrack with people who love it so much and understand it so deeply. So yeah, so this has been wonderful. It is now 4.28 a.m. Um, I dare say we can, we're going to probably get sunrise at some point, which is kind of appropriate. Um, so yeah. yeah, no, but thank you for inviting me on. It's been a great pleasure to see you both again. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next time with another episode. Yeah, and if you're interested in joining our Patreon program, you can uh, just head over to bladerunnerpodcast.com <laughs> forward slash support or perfectorganism.com slash support and, uh, and help us out there. We'd love to have you be members of the family and uh, be with us on this journey too. So thank you everybody. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you. <laughs>